Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and you're listening to the 40th episode of the show, where we once again will take a well-known member of the gaming sphere and cast them off for eternity to play just eight games. My guest this week is a YouTuber, but not one of those top 10 best of all timers or let's players. No, my guest this week is under the alias of Super Bunny Hop, creates videos that take a good critical analysis of the latest releases or gaming trends. His videos are smart, long-form essays that offer a deeper insight into how or why games are the way they are. Having started all the way back in 2012 with a critical look at the Zelda series, he's continued on since by tackling series such as Metal Gear, Dark Souls, and The Elder Scrolls, just to name a few whilst also amassing almost a quarter of a million subscribers in the process. He's also one part of the TOVG podcast, a popular gaming podcast that's made up of a multitude of different gaming YouTubers. My guest this week is the wise one himself, Mr. George Weedman. Hello, George. I'm the wise one. <laughs> I, I feel like your videos substantially back that up. I, I feel. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I just uh, never really like pictured myself as as being Obi Wan Kenobi or <laughs> or the Yoda of video game YouTubers. That's that's a a distinction that I feel might might be better suited towards a lot of a lot of writers that I feel are way smarter than me. Uh, but it th- I, that may be true. But I think in the YouTube space, considering how YouTube is maybe unfolding these days with very much the very similar content. Uh, happening all the time with top tens uh, and yes. let's plays and stuff it, like that your your content is a, a more it's more like the, the the writing side of video games but while also being popular you're like the you're like the the weird anomaly in the space the, the highest standard of the lowest standards <laughs> you said it not me you said but <laughs> Oh no, I've been cast out of the gaming sphere and have to live on this deserted island with with nothing but, but eight games who uh, I assume would need like an electrical hookup connection. One thing I want to ask yeah, is, yeah. is internet allowed? Yeah, internet is allowed. Don't, don't worry okay, about that. Cool. Don't worry about the, the, the difficulties of getting electricity to this island and stuff. But the, right, the right. rule with the internet um, is that... You can you, what you can are the play mechanics. You, so you, no, you can play online games. That's fine. But what you okay. can't do is you can't talk to people. Oh my god! Really? Yes, because otherwise you can ask them for help to get you off the island. So if you take what, a game what, like Overwatch, for example, changes. Oh jeez. Oh jeez. You just threw a wrench in my plans. Oh god. Well, maybe we can get to the game that I know you're going to talk about. Um, yes. I think I'm, anyone I'm who, writing down bullet points now. <laughs> I think anyone who knows you knows what game uh, we're probably going to be talking about. The game has changed. The game has changed. Well, we can get to that. Maybe we can give you an exception to the rule. I, I throw out exceptions on this podcast all the time. I don't know. I really, I really like hard modes. So let's do it. I'm on an <laughs> island. I have, I have enough internet to play games, but I can't talk to people. That's yeah. You can't. It's you can't basically. Ask them, so, the MGS3 perfect stealth European extreme mode of essentially of playing video games by yourself in a room all so, alone. So if you were playing Overwatch, for example, you could use the in-game emotes. Like you can use in-game emotes. That's fine because unless you can somehow signal an SOS signal using okay in-game emotes, which I am sure is possible. Um, yeah, but talking to people directly and being like, "Hey, 
hey, I'm stuck on a deserted island. Please help me out. That that's not allowed. We want you. We have to keep you there. We have to keep you there. Okay. Unfortunately. Um. But yes, George. Thank you so much for joining me, Mr. Super Bunny Hawk oh, no himself. Problem. Thank you. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about you for people who maybe don't know who you are. Um, so you've been creating content about games for a while now. Um, but how did you sort of start doing it? Was it immediately into YouTube? I know you've done some writing as well, but did that, is that how it sort of began? Yeah, I, I started writing out for a, a website for free that I don't know if, if anyone knows about it or if I necessarily would uh, be be really proud or public about my experience breaking into it. I um, worked at a newspaper for a year before deciding to bicycle across the country and then deciding out in the middle of the desert all alone that I really just kind of need to be devoting my life to doing something I enjoy, which is writing about video games, and then getting into it when I got back home. But um, I, I wanted to be a journalist growing up. At one point I wanted to be a chef, at one point I wanted to be a pilot, but the recurring theme going back and forth throughout my younger years was always wanting to use my 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 talent and passion for writing to be able to convey some kind of truth about shitty situations to people. <laughs> and and I feel like the niche I've worked out for myself on YouTube is a uh <laughs> acceptable way to to delve into that and kind of realize that childhood dream come true but at the same time i feel like there's more quality journalism work i could be doing than i do one of the downsides of being a youtuber is is that you're kind of your own boss there's not really someone to crack the whip around you and and make sure that you're devoting yourself to really really relevant ethically important stories all the time which is a little tragic because that means I get caught up in in the very real game of uh, easy gains, basically. Yeah. Um, when I was, uh, I, I think like the peak of of the bunny hop viewing material is is the Konami saga, right? Where I verified rumors within Konami that shed light on what they were doing with uh, Hideo Kojima at the time and the Metal Gear Solid V project and their future plans, all predictions of which turned out to be true as the year went on, but a week later they tried to take the video down, which turned out to be one of the biggest stories of the year, and uh, I, I guess since then I've, I've kind of felt weirdly satisfied with what I've done, and haven't really like had a boss be able to try to Try, try, try to crack me into something new. There are stories that I've pursued since then, but have all kind of like reached a dead end of not being able to verify enough sources. But that's a huge problem with video game journalism in general, is like so many uh, exploited employees aren't exactly willing to talk about their exploitation because it is just video games. It's a cushy job that, well, I don't know, not necessarily like cushy job, but it's it's not like they're slaving away in, in the diamond mines. They want to be able to stay employable after spilling the beans to a journalist. And yeah, absolutely. The, uh, journalists themselves aren't aren't really breaking stories that that carry the same political importance that um, more localized, more political reporting will carry. So it's really hard to sometimes just get quotes and, and verify sources for stories. And uh, there are a lot of outlets and writers that I feel do a better job than my own stuff, even though I am really proud of of what I have been able to contribute to uh, 
hopefully changing the standards of um, YouTube content over the next years as as maybe other people attempt to tackle big stories as well. One uh, really, really proud moment was when uh, they launched a million-dollar legal defense fund. YouTube launched a million-dollar legal defense fund, I think, around six months after my Konami news story break. They gave uh, the responsibility of announcing this news to Jim Sterling, who um, I, I believe told me that uh, I, I was actually one of the model cases they were looking at in terms of, wow, this guy's story is traditional journalism and completely defensible under laws that any company could be trying to sue him with. And yeah. it also looks really good on our platform. Let's start <laughs> an initiative to maybe have more of this stuff come out. So that's So you, you cool. opened the floodgates for more... For the sort of defense of stuff like what Jim Sterling does and what you do, which is maybe sometimes taking a critical look at companies like Konami and in Jim's case, like EA and stuff like that and Ubisoft and not allowing them to do that age old thing of just taking down videos in like copyright strikes and that kind of thing. And also publishing things like dirt and scandals and leaks, which is way more risky than just video game critique. And, and really like I would hope, that I've done that, but the downside of, of anyone being a YouTuber is that it's such a small economy that at, when you have a situation where everyone's kind of their own boss, everyone kind of wants to take the easy way out of producing the, the easiest content they can for the most views as possible. And I, I will admit I'm guilty as charged of having that um, conflict of interest in my own content because I used to do these like really long, in-depth, 30 to 40 minute long yeah. Uh, research pieces where where I would absolutely pour into the materials that not just talked about the behind the scenes production of a video game coming out but also the inspirations that inspired it itself like when I was doing MGS3 I watched a bunch of James Bond and Hitchcock movies and and read the history behind those when I was doing MGS2 I I freaking read John Paul Sartre and and <laughs> pieces on postmodern architecture that that influenced a lot of the crazy ass directions that story takes and it was just so exhausting and, and very rewarding and really helped me out in the early days establish an audience but now it's it's hard to feel with the amount of money that that stuff ends up making it's hard to feel justified going into another one of those projects again unless i have like a brand deal attached to it you, you might notice that the really longer, more research-exhaustive projects I do from here on out might have a brand deal attached to it of a little sponsorship at the beginning. Because back then, I was um, making those videos while working in a kitchen washing dishes, while working an office day job, while also putting out smaller videos every week to meet a regular deadline of content in addition to the big 30 to 40 minute critical close-ups and I was just like losing so much sleep and had such a, a lack of a social life that I think I was legitimately depressed during the first like year and a half of bunny hop because the thing is, is that it was also making no money during that time as well so I, I was constantly dealing with the emotional stress of working on a project that might not be able to pan out like like the childhood dream job that just might forever be a dream job at that yeah. point and that was really uh, discouraging to deal with as well and and you know because I'm my own boss and there's no one cracking the whip the 
candid emotional forces at play in my head just associate big projects like that with a really depressing time in my life that I don't know if I want to go back to. So what is this sort of alternative to that then? Because you do reviews and stuff like that, but you also still do that sort of in-depth look like recently you came to Japan. You came to my side of the world and um, Mm -hmm. your string of... like What I really enjoyed is you did a string of videos about not kind of like Japanese culture, but also relevant to video games as well, like the Kirby Cafe, the arcades and stuff like that. Um, What was fascinating about that for me was I get questions daily about what Japan is like, what's Japan like, what is it? And it's hard to explain sometimes because there's so much to it, but your video is absolutely nailed. Like, what if they nailed what it is? Yeah. And they answered almost every question I had. And you still seem to do that research and that really good breakdown of what exactly it is you're trying to explain or and, talk and about. I think because I'm my own boss and not given assignments the the difference really is me feeling inspiration to tackle a big topic like that while I'm still dealing with the stress of wanting to sleep and hang out with friends over the weekends because you can see over the course of three weeks I did put out 38 minutes of video about Japan and I could make one video that was 38 minutes long in addition to smaller like weekly review videos or editorial pieces, which are actually a lot more time efficient to do than reviews because video games take forever to play through. But I padded it out across three weeks and that gets viewers to watch three advertisements at, at bare minimum if they don't have their ad blocker turned on and also gives me opportunities to to maybe throw in a mid-roll there for the particularly long ones and not have to have no life of also trying to put out a smaller video in the meantime and during those projects I was reading economic materials and news reports about how the Japanese economy works and how the arcades can still exist well in addition to making the big actual trip itself and, and being there on the ground, talking to people and doing the things that yeah. that I was researching into. But I, I don't know, like the defining line of me going to that length might really just be me being more excited about it and having more fun with it. And I feel like another high moment since then is my uh, piece about bull shots. Yes. Where, where I, I dug out the old college textbook and, and talked to a couple developers, sorry, about how their advertising works. And I really, really like the video that came out of that, too. But it was also 12 minutes long. So I don't know if people would put that in the same caliber of, of high-quality YouTube production as the old 30-minute-long critical close-ups. But I feel like the topic I'm tackling there was kind of more relevant and more important than than a slightly more in-depth reviews of 20-year-old franchises because uh that was an issue that was affecting everyone like right now i I feel like that's our bullshots illegal that 12-minute video might be a better example of of quote-unquote youtube journalism happening than than the videos i might end up being more well known for except for the whole konami thing yeah konami super duper proud resume material uh, uh, critical close-up Metal Gear Solid 2 is something that I kind of cringe at myself whenever I load it up again. Oh, God, the intro to that video is, <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> well, that's the weird thing, because, uh, as you said, when you said it, it does sound fairly generic YouTube stuff. Like, 
But when you watch it, people can see the material there is a lot different to other people. And the, and the way you sort of... I, one thing I find extremely difficult when I do it is is to put a point across the point I'm trying to make very well. But that seems to be something that completely comes very natural to you. I mean, whether it's the Bullshots video or the Konami stuff or even like a critical close-up of Zelda, Dark Souls or whatever, you're always able to present all this information and all these mm-hmm. things and then nail the point you're trying to make. And it's the same with the Bullshots thing. Like, are Bullshots illegal? Well, and, that's and how I, we And I think... I think we have journalism degree to thank for that because one of the things they really hammered hard during my education was uh, methods to explain very complicated topics in a very simple way. Um, a, a classical rule of writing for newspapers is to try to use the least fancy words possible to um, basically make sure you're writing material for an audience of a very diverse, perhaps multilingual people who don't speak English as their first language, who still end up being a a part of millions who are reading your newspaper article who are gonna supposedly want to understand about what's going on in the world they live in. Yeah. So one thing that you're you're taught that I really had to grow out of was using big words which is academic writing which you're you're expected and graded on a lot when you're going through college but in journalism classes they were just like no stop unlearn all of that uh uh, keep the same concepts in your head but write them in uh much more clearer ways that reduce redundancy and word count and kind of character count too so i I had to go through a trial by fire of journalism classes where where I was looking into into topics that turned out to just be fake news that that looked convincing and the uh teachers were calling me out on it and like failing projects I was really confident in because of utterly stupid mistakes that I feel a lot of consumers of media these days could could glean a lot of help out of learning um and also unlearning a lot of the dependence on the thesaurus and and long complicated high-minded academic concepts that had to be condensed you know and in, in newspapers you don't have a lot of space to write your story with yeah that's something that has changed have been completely flipped on its head and went, went a 180 with online publishing but when I was still in school, they were still teaching under the assumption that we were trying to get jobs at newspapers and magazines where we would have limited space to print our story. So they taught uh, ways to condense complicated concepts into smaller spaces, which is why I think a lot of uh, my best videos might be ones that have shorter viewing times, even though I, I think a like large the section of the video. audience right right a, a, a large portion of the audience will traditionally talk about my stuff being like oh it's so impressive that he can make a 30 minute video uh about about a topic that he really looks into when really it would be more impressive if i could make the same points and go through the same amount of research and backing of my arguments in 10 to 15 minutes. yeah in half the time like that yeah. that from what i was taught in school that is the product that would actually take more writing skill and and (laughs) prowess and talent and and hours spent away looking at your script and figuring out ways to acceptably make it smaller than the videos that go on for Mm. for much longer times just kind of going down a a list of bullet point notes you're taking while playing a game so then tell me then 
obviously being someone who is of quite popular notoriety on YouTube and knowing other people who obviously you do the TOVG podcast um, that's you know created by one of my favorite YouTubers personally which is Gerard the completionist um, and he does something very different as well to the sort of norm um, that other people do it's a bit more YouTube content like but it's very different to these top 10 lists or these let's plays and that kind of stuff where do you sort of see it going do you see it flipping on its head and maybe favoring more stuff that you do or is it is it now just stuck in this way where this very similar content that everyone creates is always going to be the most viewed and the most popular and it's going to be difficult for anyone to maybe who wants to create stuff like what you do but it's just going to be so hard for them to even get the views i think it will be professional not professionally perpetually difficult for uh, non-comedy informative content to succeed on YouTube because um, what the YouTube audience wants, which I think is, is really what the audience of all media wants, is, is content that they think is entertaining and fun and engaging. And a lot of uh, traditional news outlets have always been able to coast by on some kind of subsidy way way back before cable news networks propped up they um had local news affiliates who would produce their news on on a loss after making profits from advertising put on on the entertainment programming and with the launch of cable news you saw the news itself kind of become entertainment programming and what is most popular on youtube is is comedy content that is unscripted and very personality driven but having a more anonymous voice just tell you facts that that are true and verified and fact checked i think may never really work like uh even even channels such as the, the Young Turks, for example, still have, like, talking heads, personalities delivering the news. One anomaly, I think, are the, uh, like, quick 30-second um, little little Facebook embedded videos you can see on, on your friend's newsfeed sometimes. Well, well there will just be 30 seconds of, of a clip show of some certain event with, with giant text telling you some related fact. And, and yeah. a lot of times there will be a, a narrative associated with it. But the story will still be a, a wacky, offbeat, human interest kind of topic, and the, the, the quick 30-second long presentation of it will make it more fun and entertaining than perhaps that same story being stretched out to, to five to ten minutes to give the situation more nuance than what they can really cram in 30 seconds. And I think it's kind of sad that having an anonymous voice just spouting you facts is now a format that has to happen in, you know, 60 seconds or less on Facebook yeah. instead of more, more, <laughs> more, more robust, lengthier mediums. Mm. People just want to consume it quickly and easily. And right, right. It's mm. difficult to combat that by creating that content to be of substance, um, of worthwhile substance as well, which is difficult. But I think I, I just remember the name of the the videos I'm thinking of. You you've have you seen these uh, quote unquote now this videos on yes, Facebook? Yes. So yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Those and I are think the anomalies. I think they're actually owned by Facebook as well. Um, 
I think, which makes it even worse because they're pretty much on everyone's feed. So everyone sees it. So everyone sees that as a standard of content uh, on a daily basis of a way right. of news, which is even and worse. I, I think the grand tragedy of it all is that really, in order to reliably succeed being able to do news, is that you kind of have to be fun. John Stewart and Stephen Colbert really, really figured this out in the past 10 years. I think the unfortunate reality of the past two years is that Breitbart has figured it out as well. And unless there are other outlets on the other end of the political spectrum that are figuring out how to make politically engaging news content fun, then... then well, we have John Oliver as well. So many... Yeah, and I, I don't know. Like, we also have Samantha Bee. I... I, I don't I don't find them as fun as John Stewart okay. and Stephen Colbert and mm. uh, that's just like like my candid personal opinion preference right but I also think it's yeah. becoming a serious legitimate problem. Well, maybe we should talk about some more positive topics uh, oh. in regards to the sort of unfortunate circumstance of living in 2016, which is becoming a serious problem for all of humanity. This year has been a not a good yeah. year, but it's been we a good year for games. We need to figure out how um, to make reasonable content fun again. <laughs> <laughs> to make us all enjoy. But we are here to talk about video games. and video Which games are fun. That, which are fun, and video games that you have personally chosen, so they are fun to you. Games that I find fun. <laughs> games that you will find fun forever, because you're going to be If trapped. I was in the circumstances <laughs> where I had to pick eight fun things that would last me enough that would give me enough fun for the rest of a lifetime I've narrowed the list down <laughs> well that's excellent because we're going to go and we're going to start talking about these fun games let's, now let's, and let's these do eight. it let's have fun um, so why don't we listen to some music from the first game some excellent music that we both were talking about before we started recording. I wonder what it is I wonder if anyone has ever watched George will know two of the games that are definitely on this list and this first game is without a doubt um, your favorite I think might might be might be so let's listen to some excellent music and let's start diving into George's final games oh jeez what a thrill with darkness and silence through the night what a thrill I'm searching and melting you you As to no surprise to anyone who has ever watched any of your stuff or has followed you for a long time, George, the first game that you're going to be taking with you to the deserted place with you for some fun times is the game developed by Konami. And, what a thrill. And directed by a one uh, unknown director called Hideo Kojima. Uh, it, re it, re <laughs> it originally released on the PlayStation 2 all the way back in 2004. Yesterday, in fact, well, actually, today, yeah, yesterday, uh, what, it was its 12th year anniversary, I believe. 
uh, 12 years since the release of this game in North America. It's since been released on multiple platforms across the PlayStation 3, the GameCube, uh, not the game, yeah, the GameCube, um, uh, the PlayStation Vita as well, just on every platform these days. It's the best game in the series, in my personal Facing opinion. Facing the darkness and the silence <laughs> of living on a deserted island, I... Yep. Which, I, I which, would still search and melt into into this game. Which also, being trapped on a deserted island, this game, which is, of course, a, Metal Gear Solid a, a, 3. A trial to survive, really. Yes. It will give you the survival tips and instincts you need to survive I, as well. I, someday, I, I might go <laughs> through the rain and, and have to feed <laughs> on a tree frog. <laughs> Well, going with the thrill, George, please tell me why the first game that you're taking with you is Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. It is cute. It is endearing. I, I think it's an absolutely adorable intersection between the story and the gameplay that it's trying to convey. You you have these, these absolutely adorable characters who are just cool as hell. The MGS3 version of Big Boss is, is like, probably... The, the the pinnacle of, of male fantasy fulfillment and <laughs> in, in if not video games, I think fiction in general. This is a guy who crosses over influences between like late eighties, early nineties Kurt Russell action movies with James Bond, with also Rambo. It's it's like if you are are probably the, 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 the primary target demographic of this game, then 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 you're you're probably a, a, like I don't know, young man who who has probably cared about masculinity at some point, and and this guy just like embodies all of all of I don't know I, I can't necessarily say like positive qualities of of like the typical male fantasy action hero role model, <laughs> but but it's it's this incredibly weird situation where you have an explosive action game that's super perverted in Japanese about sneaking around and killing people. But there's not really a whole lot of uh, like criticisms people have written talking about the the moral dissonance of this game going on. Like like it has just super well written characters. Uh, no no matter what kind of role they're trying to fill, the um the 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 lady characters in the game are great they 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 have femininity that makes sense the 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 action hero lead male is is just like this this super cool guy the the villain is is doing all the wrong things that that uh uh this kind of like american influenced japanese version of masculinity should not be doing <laughs> which also means he's gay which is still like funny and probably like the one the one thing that might be unpalatable to modern tastes in terms of how this game plays sexual politics. But it's like almost a role reversal of the traditional James Bond situation where where the like handsome renaissance uh, uh, male lead is also like a horrible sociopathic womanizer. In this case, he's <laughs> he's a guy who's just like <laughs> kind of wimpy and really likes his mom and is really, really <laughs> embarrassed to talk to the girl he likes, who he doesn't know, even know if he likes. She just like takes his her boobs out around him. And uh, yeah, like like I see I see a lot of, of just like really adorable, really personal conflicts going on between 
the the intersection of these five characters who are are cast into a ridiculous Cold War espionage situation, but have really really simple relatable psychological conflicts happening between one another you have ocelot who's like this uh adorable little kid who's looking up at big boss like he's some kind of hero and big boss himself who's just really confused and devastated about having to like kind of be cast out in the world away from his mom and become an adult and also his his like mom herself who's who's supposed to be making these these huge sacrifices in the name of of a country that that everyone ends up becoming completely disillusioned with by the end and uh and and <laughs> the 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 love interest like she's also super duper cool as well and like uses her her feminine charms in a way that's not exploitive and and ends up getting her motivations as a character done as well by the end of the story and the story itself ends up mattering way less than just like that emotional connection that you feel with these characters this is all just story by the way like the gameplay itself i think is absolutely amazing it's like a replayable incredibly dense but but also very very well paced uh 10 to 12 hour experience that you can go through six to eight different times and play completely differently every time and find something new as you're going through but but still there's just ah it so many like adorable little emotional <laughs> moments like like remember when you get trapped in in the prison cell and you have yeah. a conversation with the guard who's just like man being a guard in this prison cell really really sucks i just want to go home and see my kid and you're like oh and and the guy has an american accent a, a north american accent for his voice actor as part of a deliberate attempt by the director to get the character to relate with the bad guys and their own emotional conflicts it's just like an incredibly well-directed video game story that that I don't think has been topped might never really be topped and it it also shows a lot of the potential that I think Kojima has for making simple well-understood stories that have books of layers of complexity like hinted at by by their body acting their tone of voice and the the direction of the cinematography going Ooh, do, do you hear me shivering talking about this game? <laughs> well, I think it's a well-known fact that you adore this game. One thing I do wonder, though, is how do you feel about people who say, especially about the MGS series, that Kojima, like you were saying, the story can't be top, but the way Kojima portrays the stories in such convoluted ways, people have the problem with that. Yeah, they do, and that's why I think MGS3 is like the one... <laughs> truly excellent example of a kojima story done right i i don't know like i really enjoy the the point and click adventures he did before metal gear metal gear solid one and three though seem like uh exceptions to that rule of the convoluted kojima story they they have i, I during my first run through had really no problem following the beats and events of those stories whereas two four and anything after four just completely go haywire with what the player is expected to be keeping track of because uh, is that Metal because Solid... three? Sorry, is that because three in itself can be thought of as potentially be looked at as a story contained within itself anywhere? Whereas compared to like Metal Gear Solid one and two, there is this pre almost prelude of backstory and nonsense that you need to know about about clones and and mm -hmm. just all that sort of stuff. Whereas three itself can be looked at as a contained story, 
eat if you ignore everything else anyway. Because it's a prequel. It, it doesn't have the same kind of sequel pack, sequel baggage that 2 did. Yeah. And I, I really wish that more franchises followed that methodology where fully fledged out sequels that could refine and perfect the story told in the previous one did not have to deal with baggage and could really play themselves off as more of a spin-off. Technically, you could start the series at MGS3 and be able to follow what's going along just fine because everything that you're seeing is the very beginning of the series timeline, but you'd also be missing out on uh, a cute little in-reference inside jokes and gags. Mm. But I... I... Well, it's weird because to me, I feel like the Metal Gear Solid is... uh, The Metal Gear Solid franchise is sort of split into two things, whereas I look at Metal Gear 1 and 2 and 4 as kind of quirky, weird... I don't know, experiments by Kojima, maybe to have fun. But then what happened with, like, Metal Gear Solid 3 and Big Boss's story leading up to, like, Metal Gear Solid 5, it just got darker and darker and more trying to tell a serious story about certain characters and about war and military. And that's why I think MGS3 is the perfect freaking package. Because it it, it can begin lighthearted, but in the end, it has to get really dark and sinister. But in, like, a brilliant, like, beautiful example of just how much of an abridged story it is, everything you know need to know about Big Boss's twist is conveyed in, like, the last 30 seconds. Like, unlike all the other Kojima games, MGS 1 and 3 have actually efficient writing. I, I, you, you can get on a codec call and, like, just just sit and wait away at cutscenes happening forever. The first one, I think, is way too damn long, too. But every other cutscene in that game just like really seems to go along at, at a very well-paced, nice, followable clip that that the others don't. And it's something that's like even conveyed in, in the level design and the pacing. Like you'll notice that um in the first half of the game, you are constantly climbing upwards. The stakes of the story increase as the inclines in the geography. It's freaking brilliant. Um because uh <laughs> you 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 have a fight with Ocelot. Where, where the first two zones before that have you constantly like climbing up hills and then you get uh, thrown down into a cave and have like a quiet time where you, you explore by yourself completely alone for 20 minutes and, and the attitude of having a little bit of a more placid moment to experiment with the survival system and how eating works, which is something you don't really have a lot of opportunities to play with for the rest of the game, is conveyed in the place, because you're alone in a cave by yourself. And then all of a sudden there's this weird, wacky boss fight with a Power Ranger who can shoot bees, and you climb out of the cave and keep climbing up hills again and have boss fights up a mountain where where you meet up with, with the sexy girl and then get thrown down in the cave again. And while you're heading up there, character relations develop, the, uh, the stakes of the story increase, the situation between the U.S. and the USSR get, gets more complicated. You're at the peak of the mountain when Big Boss makes the confession of how weird his relationship with the boss is. And uh, it's the, the, the climax of the moment is conveyed with how, how you climb up hills. It's... <laughs> It's freaking brilliant. <laughs> well, I think that pretty much self-explanatory explains exactly why it's going with you. Um, so why don't we move on to your next game now then um, and talk about it, which is also another game. We should have, we should have separated these two games, I think. Uh, one, at the, one at the beginning, one at the end. 
Um, but the next game, I think you have a lot to say about as well. And this is the reason why you want online as well. So why don't we listen to some music from this next game? <laughs> Good luck and- finding music from this game, by the way. <laughs> Okay, so George, before we move on to your next game, which we're no doubt going to have a good conversation about, um, I have to talk to you about the place that you're going to be deserted. Now, okay. I know you didn't know this before, but this is the part of the show where we sort of we, we allow you to decide where you're going to be deserted or stranded. Um, and it has to be a place from video games. There are going to be no people. Um, so you can think of pretty much anywhere. We've had places like uh, Outside Island from The Wind Waker, The Island of the Witness. We've even had the the spaceship from Alien Isolation. <laughs> um, so, is there anywhere that sort of springs to mind when you think of a, like a wonderful video game place that you'd like to be, maybe stranded playing MGS and the f- preceding games we're going to talk about? Uh, give me a second. <laughs> Because I'm trying to think of a place that would actually not really be that shitty, but at the same time has to have no people. And I mean, usually no, there's no, something so, so really, no, you really... can th- you can think of anywhere. It just everyone who is in it will disappear. Oh, oh, oh! If that's the case, then I'll f- I, I don't know. Like I could pick like a real location from a video game based on a real place. You absolutely could. Okay. Um. Yeah, we've had, sure. We've had. Why not? So we've had places like uh, the fictional town from Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, the lovely quaint English countryside. Um, so you can you can choose pretty much anywhere. Uh, I'm gonna do a very quick uh, Google search to make sure I get the name right. <laughs> yeah, I. For some reason, was googling the right word, but it didn't come up in English. In that case, I I would easily, without much real hesitation, just pick uh, the the neighborhood of Kamachuro from Yakuza, because it's basically Kabushinko. That is that is based on the real life uh, red light district of Shinjuku. Um, If if there are no people around, then I could just like hang out at the batting cage. Go to the you arcades. I have all the time in the world to win a stupid prize grabber game. Oh no, you've cheated! Damn it! That technically yeah, means I you're going to have more games. No, you've given oh. me too many, too many easy rules to work with. But you've also given me a rule that might completely ruin the fun of the next game. <laughs> well, 
I'm happy because this is the first time the Yakuza series has been mentioned on the show, which is a damn travesty because that that series is absolutely excellent. They're really good. They are so good. They, they. If you have any interest in Japan and want to see a bit, like, it's not based on what real life Japan is like. Uh, <laughs> have a warning there, but definitely if you want to see what the structure and architecture of Japan looks like, go play the Yakuza games. They are well, truly I don't know. excellent. Like, one of the impressions I came away from my trip was like, wow, Yakuza really, really nailed it. Oh, they, they nail the feel of a, a Japanese the area. The looks and the sounds. One, one of the yeah. things that blew my mind was uh, how in a lot of Japanese games, the characters' footsteps are way louder than the ambient sound effects in the background. And in the Yakuza games, you have really crowded cityscapes. Even on the old PS2 versions, they, they really did an impressive job cramming a lot of NPCs on the screen back yeah. then. But your your sounds of your footsteps are louder than the sounds of the crowd. And I was like, oh, that's just like some weird game design quirk to let the player know when they're moving and walking and not. And then I went to Japan and like, no, that's real. <laughs> it's the, the huge crowds in Japan are really quiet because <laughs> you're, you're supposed to not talk to anyone. And when yeah. you do, be really quiet. And <laughs> You can always hear yourself talk and, and stuff. And, your your own footsteps won't necessarily be louder than the crowd, but they will feel louder than the crowd in real life. <laughs> when you've got squeaky shoes as well sometimes, and you're like, Ooh. oh no, everyone can hear my squeaky shoes. And, and you walk on the subway train that's like packed shoulder to shoulder with Japanese yep. people and no one's saying a thing, and you're the weird <laughs> racial minority white guy <laughs> with squeaky shoes. That is me every day. <laughs> yes, so... We're gonna let you go to the wonderful world of the, the Yakuza, then. So Kamachiro. you're gonna be, yeah, you're gonna be trapped there, playing this next game, which we we do have to sort of maybe bend the rules a little bit, as long as you can justify a reason as to why hmm. I could potentially allow it. So this next game is a game I think, as well as MGS3, this is the other game I think a lot of people will know you talk about quite often. Uh, people might be surprised. Oh, maybe, maybe yes, some people yes. might be. Um, developed by Ubisoft Montreal, which uh, is a released... surprise. <laughs> yeah, which is yeah, it is a surprise. Considering it how this, not. considering yeah. how this game started out as well, this specific version in the series, um, the way it ended up being, I think a lot of people were very surprised with how it yes. turned out. Um, but it, I can't believe it. It was released last December, almost a year ago. It, it feels a lot shorter than that. It feels like still a brand new game. Um, released for the PlayStation 4, the Xbox One, and the PC, of course. It's the first-person shooter tactical uh, team-based shooter, Rainbow Six Siege, or Tom Siege. Clancy's Rainbow Six Siege. Tom George, Clancy's, yeah. It I, I have to let everyone know as well. George was like, how, how, long, is, how long is this show going to be? And I was like, oh, I, you know, an hour and a half maybe. And he was like, oh, okay, okay. I was like, why? Do you need someone to be? He was like, no, I just, I just need to tell my friends when I'll be playing Rainbow Six Siege. <laughs> which, which is one of one of the conditions that makes this tricky. So you say I can't talk to people. Okay, so the usual rule is that you cannot because in any way you're able to communicate to people that you're trapped in a deserted island and you need help. We can't allow that. We have to have you stuck in Cabochol forever playing these games um uh is text so, chat allowed see even text chat you'd be able to you know give the coordinate the co coordinates of your place and they would be able to pick you up see but if you can justify a reason as to why 
tech, uh, well, chat, I can imagine Chang okay. is very important to this game. So if you can justify yes. to me as to why, and also here, why you've chosen it. Here is um, my justification. I, I bring eight games with me to a completely deserted Kamachiro from Yakuza, but I don't <laughs> know I'm not allowed to talk. Thus, solidifying this as a game I would love to have forever, but... But, you know, in order to, like, make things interesting and kind of a, like, Twilight Zone, oh, no, I broke my glasses in the nuclear apocalypse situation. <laughs> really, like, having Rainbow Six Siege in a deserted place that I'd be able to play on the internet forever but not being able to talk with it is, is just, like, the perfect twist. It's very, uh, very, 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 like, post-war literature of you. <laughs> where I'm in a Absolutely perfect world on with one fatal flaw. <laughs> this was because totally my intention. Rainbow Six Siege is brilliant. It's a uh, social game with, with almost limitless replayability, much like MGS3 in a situation that's still working with classic video game tropes of being psychopathic assholes who got to kill each other all the time. Uh, the thing is, though, all the, all the games on my list are going to be focused on replayability so that they'll last a while. And Rainbow Six yeah. Siege, of all the multiplayer games I've played, is the one that most elegantly avoids the the typical multiplayer game pitfall of every match feeling exactly the same with with minor differences in exhibited player skill in each one and one of the things that was so exciting and so surprising about it when it first launched it really needed an evangelist when it first launched and i tried to be that evangelist because it's a brilliant game that everyone hated during the first two weeks but uh you you have probably the first like AAA gaming tentpole benchmark release that I think I've played in like a good 10 years, maybe since Crisis 1, where a massive uh, improvement in, in graphical fidelity influenced an improvement in gameplay. And that is the destruction tech. You can shoot a hole in a wall and see through to the other side. If you shoot a few more holes in the wall, you uh, will eventually shoot out a huge chunk of the wall that will function as like a turret rampart in a castle where, where you can see enemies before they see you because they just flat out don't know where, where your turrets are. If you uh, shoot a bunch of little holes in a wall and connect them all together, a giant chunk in the shape of your like hole-punched perforation will just slide right out of the wall. It's a really, really brilliant piece of technology that influenced the gameplay because it makes it all about a dominating line of sights in a very, very malleable map. And it means that every single match that I've played, and I've been playing this game consistently for a whole year, doesn't feel the same. And it means that spawning in different locations in the same map will make that one map feel like an entirely different map. Like, the math is just outrageous. The game launched with, I think, 10 maps. And people, like, can look at that and be like, oh, it's an online-only multiplayer game with just 10 maps and one mode. But the math works out in a way where if one team is spawning in a place they weren't spawning in the previous match, it will play completely differently. Because yeah. of the destruction tech, the same match and the same spawn points will still play completely differently. So if I'm stuck in a deserted island and have one game to play forever, like every single match of Siege is going to be way different from the last. And there's also a very, very nice counterbalance between um, strategy and Twitch 
learn Twitch skill and map memorization. Because the maps are malleable enough to the point where if you don't really know it, you can still just blap a, blast a peephole in the wall outside of some area you want to guard and have good visibility over enemies who might... Opponents, sorry, rather. It's, it is a multiplayer game. You know, want to be respectful. <laughs> and, and still have a leg up on opponents who just aren't going to be able to prepare for the the limitless possibility of an actual human being being able to manipulate the map to, to their their liking. Uh, but at the same time, it's still a tactical first-person shooter where the winners of the conflicts are the ones who can point and click on the others faster than one another. But because of that destruction tech, there's a beautiful intersection of strategy with all that. And also a kind of <laughs> weird inclusion of, of MOBA hero... Uh, abilities where characters okay. have different gadgets that can counterbalance each other's gadgets. Yeah. Um, everyone has some form of a second camera angle they can use to scan out areas before putting their own vulnerable, soft, fleshy human bodies in there. Uh, you have two teams. There's an attacker team and a defender team. The defender team fortifies their castle up with either hard walls or soft walls. If, if you want to make peepholes as, as your castle rampart turrets, you might not want to fortify a wall that your guy just pulls out a big hunk of cheek metal, a big uh, hunk of sheet metal out of their butt cheeks and then slaps it to the wall to make it bulletproof. <laughs> but that then locks out the strategic possibility of having peepholes in that wall at at the expense of having a bulletproof wall that you know you can hide behind as solid cover. Everyone has uh, cameras. The attackers have little remote control car drones that they can send in to scan an area before they go in themselves. There's even like a little hide and seek game going on where, where you can hide these drones in You can hide the drones in inaccessible, small, cramped areas, or even camouflage them within the, the clutter of these very detailed levels and have uh, an, an information warfare happening where you're, this is why it's important to talk in Siege, using your drones or your cameras as defenders to relay information about the enemies to the other teams. Uh, the, the methodology of a Siege match always begins with a... 30 second long preparation phase in which attackers are trying to position their drones to find the enemy team, weed out their hiding spots, find out who's staying at the objective and defending it, and who's going to be roaming around the map to get a leg up on the competition. The defenders are going to be trying as hard as they can to both fortify their 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 area of their little mini base in the map and also trying to shoot these drones scoping them out at the same time and as soon as that ticker ticks down if you're playing with a competent team they'll be able to know where the other team has spawned which immediately gives the entire team like the kind of mental picture they need to paint to be able to weed out the way the way they should be playing for the rest of the match so unlike counter-strike I, I think this game's like a lot more interesting than the current version of counter-strike there's a lot of cerebral play going on where you have to like think about what you're doing and think strategically. And because of the destruction technology, which makes incredibly lethal peepholes that players can just uh, blast into tiny, unsuspected, unpredictable elements of the map, the game has a lot of tunnel vision going on. Since the time to kill is so quick, uh, much like in Counter-Strike, crosshair placement is what oftentimes will win the gunfights over 
well, in addition to raw reflex, but yeah. the way you counter that is by flanking a person. Since there's so much tunnel vision going on, you you have the advantage in a firefight if they're just not looking at you during the first second of the exchange. So it's also strategic. It's 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 legitimately tactical. Like it's not just the genre of the game. That's how it plays. And the brilliant thing about it and why talking is so important is that it actually gets people on their microphones to talk like super serious role playing police SWAT guys who will move in a conga line and report out enemy positions and say things like, uh, check your corners. We got some uh, movement on the on the northwest side of the uh, bathroom heading up there. And then the other guy will be like, uh, copy that. I'll keep pointing west. Keep your gun pointing east just in case we have a roamer on the second floor. <laughs> and watching streams of it is really fun. Playing with your friends is really fun. Hell, I've had fun playing with randos because the game is is built in a way to get people talking to one another. Because if you don't, you you lose matches. Communication, like strategy, positioning, knowledge, and... Uh, like knowing where you are in relation to where the enemies are and where at which direction everyone is facing is what wins the matches at the end of the day over just raw reflex and skill and like memorized bullet spray patterns. Yeah. And that is just like so much more interesting to me than almost any other multiplayer shooter I've ever played. So if I had to bring one to a deserted island, it'd be Rainbow Six Siege. See, this is really interesting. Island with internet. It's really interesting you said about randos because... I've not played this game uh, yet. I've not had chance to. And since being in Japan, since it launched, I've, I've always been put off by the fact that I can't play with anyone I know or I get a group together because the time zones is just too difficult. Um, yeah. but, but if I'm in a, in, in, a, in a Yakuza version of Kamachiro, there's no day-night cycle. So it's fair game. That's true. But for me, I've always been put off by it just because I couldn't play with like a team so the idea that you said it's it's still pretty good with randos makes me kind of want to pick it up maybe uh they (laughs) tried really really hard to promote it in the early days they do free weekends every now and then so uh you could you could pick it up and and play with the dads play with dad squad delta at uh some point when they're doing one of those promotions there's a lot to learn but the process of learning it was just so so fun and like kind of inspiring that I thought it was ah. well worth it. I've had a lot of friends come into it really late into the cycle and still get hooked. Maybe, maybe I'll have a look at that. I always want to play in a team. So, uh, I'm so interested. I, I've always wanted this kind of game. Like tactical shooting is so much more fun to me, like planning out and, and, working together to maybe assault a place or to defend a place always seems a lot more interesting than just running around and shooting each other. Yeah, um, it's it's a very tight, concise experience. Since it's all 5v5, you yeah. uh, will know exactly what you're up against given how the match is going. You know that there's only going to be five drones in the preparation phase. As soon as one person gets gets knocked out of the match, you know who's at the disadvantage and who's at the advantage and how many people are left at the... Uh, places you need to go but okay. since it's so important to know where they are and what direction they're looking in and what angles of sight they have to work with you uh, have a huge sense of tension and stress that gets people talking to one another about how how to play the game together 
Okay. Well, next time maybe maybe I'll have a think about it. I do. It's, I it's do a hard really sell. Want to try it. It's a hard it, sell it, it's, because it's, it is an online only yeah. Ubisoft developed uh, modern military shooter. It's like super gray and colorless. There's no memorable music tracks for you to pick from for this podcast. <laughs> so I understand where you're coming from, but it, it it's it's a beautiful game. It it the end of the day after after all of the strikes it had going against it i'm really yeah really happy and inspired to see with how well it's done over the past year after having such a bad launch coming out to such bad reviews i think like me and uh maybe wired magazine written by daniel starkey were like the only positive reviews of this game that came out on launch because there were just so many red flags coming out against it it's it's like <laughs> Whether or not someone likes Rainbow Six Siege, I think, is a good example of of where their video game prejudices lie. <laughs> well, mine would just be I I would want to play with friends. I couldn't care less about too many other things. I just want to have fun yeah. with friends, when, not on my when own. They put it on sale or have a free weekend again. I will let you know. Okay. And get you in the Discord. The Dad okay, Squad Delta Discord. Okay, Dad Squad, let's go. Well, on the, on that basis, and come full circle, because of how much I've harped on about playing with friends, and that being the reason I'm not playing, I don't want to take away that fun that you have. So maybe I, I will allow you to chat. Okay. But... If you meant, I'm gonna have to put like a collar around your neck. So if you ever mention the words "trapped in Yakuza Red Light District," uh, my any head keywords? Explodes. Yeah, it's kind of like battle um, royale style. That's <laughs> horrible. <laughs> why would you? Why would you do such a thing? Why would I send anyone anywhere anyway? <laughs> well. We're, I'm gonna allow you to do that, and George, you can you can you can chat to people, and you can still have your role playing fun of being a SWAT team member, of being a, a real dad, of a, being <laughs> being a part of Dad Squad, uh, Dad Squad Delta. Um, yeah. So Rainbow Six Siege, excellent. Well, I think it's about time we move on to the next lot of games, which are games you've chosen for the kind of replayability. Um, which I'm very interested to hear about the next game, uh, as I worked on the mobile ports for this next game um so if you've played any oh. mobile puts of the next game um and they don't work that's entirely my fault i'm sorry yeah but- <laughs> i was about to say of all the versions of this game you could have worked on you had I'm not to, that old. Had to I'm end only- up with the, with the mobile ones <laughs> i'm only 26 there's no way i worked on the original so <laughs> well why don't we listen to some really good music because the soundtrack to this game is excellent let's listen to some excellent music from this Watch next out game for copyright yeah i will i only play 30 seconds or so of each music so <laughs> I can't get told off by anyone but let's listen to the music and let's dive straight into it oh no don't try to touch that dial before you think about that don't do it here's another record man I'm gonna keep you locked and loaded on RLS Radio Los Santos The street getting paid for my vocal Here is something you can't understand 
So the next game you've chosen is a little bit of a is a little bit of a change from what we've been talking about. Um, you had very good reason to take MGS. Very good reason to take Rainbow Siege, being replayability. Uh, I've never really... I don't think I've ever come across you talking about this series before, the GTA series. Um, yeah. This game you're taking isn't GTA Five though, uh, which is the only GTA that's ever been on this show. No one's chosen this game yet, uh, which is personally my favorite GTA as well. Uh, it's developed by Rockstar North, of course, and published by Rockstar Games, um, directed by the Hauser Brothers, and released for every platform under the sun, Including, including all those models. mobile ports, including all those mobile ports that I spent many a night and day working on. Um, but yeah, this next game is the single-player awesome GTA title, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. George, GTA San Andreas. Why, I, why is, I think why is that? Basically, a better version of GTA V because the controls are quick and responsive. There's a diverse. Uh, visually distinct set of cities to travel across there's a actually good licensed soundtrack of <laughs> of, of music that i i actually know and remember and and have uh endearing little associations with and i think that's why i'd like pick it over a more mechanically solid game even though i i i think that the ps2 era gtas are mechanically solid before they tried to focus way too much on this procedural animation euphoria bullshit that can have your character like rolling over and falling downstairs when you press the wrong button even though like it looks funny i just really don't like not being in control of my characters and that's uh an unfortunate direction that i feel like they've chosen to take the the series in i feel like it was an unfortunate direction to take the series towards trying really haphazardly to uh, satirize the modern day era rather than kind of keeping things safely nostalgic because uh, the, the, the comedy of GTA like really seems to get it wrong sometimes. And uh, when, when the world is placed in a over the top satirical version of a, a nostalgic time period, there's a little more romanticism to it that I feel is has been really, really lost on the series since then. Yeah. Um, I, I absolutely love San Andreas. I know I don't talk about it a lot on the channel, but it, it really is like one of my favorite games of all time, even though I think it has been outclassed in a lot of ways by other sandbox games since then. Mm -hmm. But I, I would bring it along for mainly like that reason, that uh, that I, I have enduring, nostalgic, time-of-life associations with a lot of the, the places and the songs and the characters in this game. Like, really solid voice work. It's weird, but I think um, that, that the voice work of, of the series has gone down as well. For some reason, at 4, they decided to use much uh, more more newer, lesser experienced actors than, than they did in the earlier games. Uh, but really it's just the the way that the physics of the cars drive it's it's over the top and exciting and responsive and tight and i i get really simple thrills from just driving from city to city and feeling like i'm on this big road trip even though the map technically is smaller than than gta 5 it feels like you're covering more distance because there's more diverse places kind of compressed in a smaller area and it uh feels like a grand American road trip of a game of you spending all this time on the road going on wacky adventures with, with wacky over-the-top characters who keep throwing you in, in absolutely ridiculous situations with a solid grasp of, of comedy and characters along the way that uh, 
I I still go through it every once in a while, every other year, and really appreciate it every time I do. It's really interesting because from my standpoint, when I was younger, San Andreas was this just incredible game. Um, and I'd never really liked GTA very much uh, until San Andreas. I'd always sort of liked driving around the cars in the series and just messing around, but I was never too interested in actually what was happening in the story or I had just no interest with carrying on any further than just driving around. Whereas when it came to San Andreas, for some reason, like, as you said, the voice work, like CJ and his gang and all the, just the Grove Street crew. And then Remember all of a sudden. Remember Officer Tenpenny? Yeah, Samuel How L. You Jackson. Had, like, Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> playing this asshole cop who just showed up at the, the cutscene where he's, like, having a barbecue in the backyard of a trailer in Las Vegas is, is just like an absolutely hilarious exchange between your hero, who's kind of easily by a super wide margin, like like one of the most likable characters of, of the franchise. Cause he, hey, uh, CJ! <laughs> actually so seems to have some, some sense of morals and a sense of humor in himself. I don't know. I haven't made it all the way through 5, because okay. I, there's something about the mission design in 4 and 5 that I, I abhor, and... It has a lot to do with the freaking controls ramping up the difficulty higher than it should be. But, yeah, w w when you have a, a situation where one minor mistake can cause you to have to replay a mission over and over again, it's it seems like a very, very serious flaw of game design. And, and San Andreas, like, gets that as well. People really hate the, the mission where you have to follow the train, but for some oh, the reason... the train mission's really so had, easy! I never really had a problem with that. Yeah, what's the deal? Everyone I was just gonna say, to I've, completed, I've completed that mission about 20 times on a fucking mobile phone. You guys have nothing to complain about. That tra Do you that know train if they uh, changed that mission in the mobile port or still mm -hmm. kept the same, like... No, it's the same. It's the same. It's absolutely... I, I think have, I read somewhere that, that physics changed slightly in the mobile We port. did change the physics for some versions, but it's pretty much exactly the same. It isn't such a glaring change to make it that much easier. Um, Unlike the soundtrack. Yes. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, I finished that mission multiple times on a mobile phone, on a tablet, you have nothing to complain about. It's not that hard. I always found it funny that people complained about that mission. So I so panicked when I had to do 100% speed runs of the game to check everything. And I'd always be panicking about getting to that mission. That mission's not the hardest. The, the hardest mission in San Andreas is the fucking motorbike stunt challenges where you have to get all the fucking ring uh, things and the swimming pool one where you have to go up and you have to maintain your speed to get all the things in a certain amount of time to get gold medals. That's hard. That's and the Chilean challenge. That's hard. That's the hard stuff in San Andreas, in my opinion. Um, the, the, the like <laughs> problem with the GTA series before then was that it was a super blatant mix of bad shooting and bad driving. And in San Andreas, they unlock your crosshair. And the, the, they seem to have gone the uh, self-deprecating route with the driving physics, where just all of a sudden, like, every car has such ridiculous senses of, of physics and weight to it that <laughs> driving everything is, is a fun experience where everything can, can turn on a dime and get where you want it to go, it, which it, I think is, is the, real, the real important factor it's, when, it's when, when you've got to drive a car. Like, like let it yeah. go where the player wants to go. Don't 
don't make the thing you're in control of something you've got to fight, which is the thing that I really don't like about 4 and 5, is both the character and the cars just feel way too heavy for for me to want to do the, the crazy responsive moves I want to be doing. It's 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 weird because it, it does seem a lot more arcadey. Like if you think about the way CJ moves, like he himself turns on a dime compared to like, as you said, the animation of the inferior, uh, Enfuria engine, like the Enfuria engine. <laughs> I feel you, brother. <laughs> the Euphoria engine, um, where it does take quite a few seconds for the character to turn around. Where CJ, he just pretty much just he pirouettes. Um, like a ballet like dancer. <laughs> yeah, he turns very quickly, and um, he just moves so good. And the the cars, they're, they're kind of arcadey. Um, yeah, it's, everything about that game feels really good, really good. I still, still after I don't know, it must be thirty two, thirty three playthroughs of that game. I oh still like God. it. Yeah, I still. Were you like in QA? It. I was. Yes. <laughs> So you still like it after how many playthroughs? About 32 or so. Good across Lord. across the iPhone, the iPad, the Windows phone at the time, the the Surface, the iPad, the iPad mini, the iPod touch, the iPhone, well, <laughs> multiple multiple different mobiles. <laughs> one one disclaimer to make here is that the first time I played it was with the original PC version. Which was a really good port, and I actually played the PS2 version a couple weeks later and was like, oh, gosh, this is what you guys have to put up with? <laughs> it's um, funny, actually, you say that because my best experience with San Andreas was playing on a Surface, a Microsoft Surface tablet, but using, like, a detachable keyboard and mouse. That that was, like, my favorite way to play that game. It was, yeah. it was really, really good. I like... Well, for one, being able to aim and shoot with mouse and keyboard is just better. But also, I, I kind of <laughs> like driving with, with WSAND and having the mouse yeah, uh, me too. look around yeah. corners for you. I'm noticing that when I go back to play like sandbox bad driving plus bad shooting games on consoles, there's a lot less uh, situational awareness because I just can't like turn my, my camera fast enough to know who's behind me or who's around the next 90-degree turn before I make it and that's something that the, the the original PC version is the one I would bring to the island because uh, that that game feels really good to control it has a really really fun map to run around in I, I like the I don't know if I like the mission structure so much but but the the mix of music and character and place is just like too endearing for me to want to leave it behind Excellent. Well, you can take it. You can take the PC version with you as well. You don't have to take any of the versions that. But but not like the by me bad <laughs> patched version that you're partially responsible for that Steam replaced and yeah. I think yeah. 2011 or 12 was it? I think it was 2012. It's, it's a real travesty. The Steam version of San Andreas is now based on the mobile version and it doesn't work it, very well. It shouldn't that shouldn't be the way the world works. Well, you can take the boxed version uh, Thank you. that got released with you. It had a really um, cool box, too. Yes. So you <laughs> minor, can take minor, that. Minor footnote to the experience, but, you know, PC original <laughs> PC version, San Andreas, really great box. Good job, guys. <laughs> Which I had no responsibility for, so that's probably why it's good. Um, but, yeah, we're going to move on to your next game now, which is uh, 
very very different we're going back a few years now we're <laughs> quite a few years back to the n64 era um and so let's listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into it next game we're going to talk about george is a game that was released for the nintendo 64 uh developed by rare who obviously just completely bossed the nintendo 64 alongside nintendo uh, yeah. with so many titles that it's, was just it's the... like a little bit of like whiplash to hear you say it's for the nintendo 64 because when i think of this game it's like that's right it actually was how did they get away with that yes it was it, and it was a technical marvel um but it was like, it was kind of like a spiritual successor to GoldenEye, which they'd worked on the same engine and they just improved it for this game. Um, it was released all the way back in 2000, which was qu- really quite late in the Nintendo 64's life cycle. Um, One of the needed, last games on the console. Yeah, it was. At all. You like, need... like Majora's Mask and this were, were it. Yeah. And After you that, needed... you, you had nothing. Yeah. Except, you need, you hey, needed you the... Pikachu. <laughs> with the camera um you needed the uh, expansion pack to play this game as well it was uh, one of those you that didn't did... need it but you should have. oh had you it. should have for the extra memory yeah same with donkey kong 64 as well um mm. it was it's made by rare as we said in music by the awesome grant kirkhope who did banjo kazooie as well and directed by martin hollis it's the first person shooter perfect dark george please tell Very, me why you're uh... taking perfect dark with you very, very prototypical example of late 90s cyberpunk. Yes. Um, very similar along the same lines of Deus Ex and that kind of thing. Especially considering the name of the character, Joanna Dark, is um, so on the nose. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I also have to make, like, a conditional request here. Okay. As, I as, first, as always. I, I will happily accept any and all moral culpability you will give me. Any criticisms that you can throw my way for having my first Perfect Dark experience being on the PC through an emulator via a painstakingly configured mouse and keyboard control scheme. <laughs> now, Dude, now... Wait, let's... wait, 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 wait. Did did you have you ever played this game on the Nintendo 64? Oh yeah, and it's not is it's not the same experience, <laughs> not at okay. all. But it's almost like more impressive because you can like see the N64 like churn and whine and like smoke and steam come out <laughs> as it tries to make a post-processing depth of field filter get get 
plastered onto a screenshot in the background when you pause the menu. Like, what the hell is that? Like, this is like two generations before things like depth of field and motion yeah. blur and and yeah. and blooms and lens flares were were normalized. And Perfect Dark was doing it on the goddamn Nintendo sixty four. <laughs> there are features in this game that that we still have not caught up with. Things like um, sixteen player bot matches with with a hugely customizable option screen that can have you like changing the skins and the faces of the bots themselves. You can shoot guns out of the enemy's hands, which is so stupid. But whatever, what other game can you do that in? I don't know, because there are none. Um, <laughs> Perfect Dark has a counter-operative multiplayer mode where one player is playing the hero in a campaign and the other switches from one mook guard to another trying to stop them. <laughs> what other game does that does that have that? Yeah! So I would bring Perfect Dark with me if it was the... Uh, hell, I would bring it if it was the N64 version, but I would prefer to bring a, a, a ROM on Project 64 version 1.7 or earlier because... Project 64 just really shat the bed after that one. Okay, so, so I don't understand why they did this. Project 64 is like a mess. It was a perfectly good program, and, and the guy absolutely like turned it into to donate wear that's just not as good an emulator as it used to be. The problem is, <laughs> is that uh, nowadays their emulation of the N64 has become like quote-unquote more accurate in the vein that it now emulates the frame drops of the N64. Ah, so it actually just is an N64 instead of upgraded PC ports. Or PC ROMs, well, which well, is what everyone still, like, really wants. Stretch it out into HD resolutions and, and like apply anti-aliasing and, and some of the weird post-processing frame buffer effects they were trying back then, which were super experimental. Uh, barely working features on the N64 don't emulate as well, even in the modern versions. But the thing is, back then, the emulation like wasn't quite perfect enough to the point where they knew when to start dropping frames. And the big problem with Perfect Dark on the N64 is that the frame rate will drop down into the single digits at some point. Because this game is just like pushing uh, uh, levels and, and combat design that was not meant for, for the N64. It, it's stuff that you were seeing more commonly often on the PC at the time, but it seems to feel more like a first generation Dreamcast or PlayStation 2 game. Like, it looks on par with Red Faction 1 when you blow it up into HD on an emulator, but the real uh, thing to be gaining from that is is a high frame rate on the bot matches. This is why I would bring it to a perfect perfect island, a, a perfect place. It's like the perfect yeah. single-player alone game, because you can simulate a multiplayer match with, with 16 AIs who are actually fairly competent and, and behave in ways that still give the player a chance at higher difficulty modes while also presenting a unique sense of challenge. Jesus Christ, there's a like challenge, um, a, a challenges mode where you can play bot matches by yourself and uh, unlock the next challenge. It's just like a situational uh, multiplayer match configured to be played alone or play that entire mode cooperatively with a friend with the difficulty adjusting as you go up. The campaign's really freaking cool because it does that rareware slash um, free radical objective design thing where you have extra objectives as you ramp the yeah. difficulty mode up higher, which unlike yeah. entirely new chunks of maps, chunks of the map, or start the player in different positions, 
that, that you would just completely gloss over during the first playthrough, which is very important for bringing to a game to a deserted island. You know, you want you want some good replay value. Yeah, you but want to be just like for a long time. So many things going on here that have become an absolute lost art on, on modern game design in terms of making single-player FPS campaigns disposable experiences. Because Perfect Dark is, has a single-player FPS campaign that's meant to be replayed over and over and over and over, and over again forever. Because, uh, you, you know, you're like a, a kid in 1999, and you have like one M-rated game to sneak into the house for, for, for years, so you got to make sure it lasts. So they built it to last. But so uh, the, the bots, bot matches, that's, that's the key. <laughs> that is a lost art. Bot matches are a very lost in-time gameplay mechanic. People are so multiplayer-focused now that the bots are just real humans, so you can't really but just you, mess you around. I remember... I remember Sorry, Sorry. The, I, I remember the last time Black Ops won for Call of Duty. You could set bot matches in that. And it was really good. The AI was actually kind of smart. Like, um, and it would simulate like people like camping and people like just stoking you out and stuff like that. It was really good, but I've not noticed since then a game that has any similar options to that, especially not a Call of Duty game. And you would really think that the uh, development of of history and, and the, the places we've gone as a society just would not have filtered out bot matches because uh, there's so much more of a focus on highly customizable uh, multiplayer modes in FPS games nowadays and that bots used to be a standard core feature of uh, more like classic late 90s turn of the millennium FPS games that yeah. the fact that we're now seeing so many good multiplayer games come out without bot matches would have been unthinkable back then because there would be the assumption that there would be some way to keep players playing if they didn't have good internet or needed to go offline. And that's uh, something that's not really a concern anymore with a lot of developers. The reason why they don't uh, have bots is because programming AI is expensive and they they still haven't developed good methodologies that, that are as superior and cost efficient as manually placing waypoint nodes around a map for them to calculate their pathing with yeah but also the uh returns just aren't there because so few players are playing games offline that uh they're the the bots is are not going to be an important feature when it comes time to get review scores and sell this game and that's what makes perfect dark such a lasting phenomenon is that this is like the one console shooter that i find feels better to play has like a better art style and sense of direction and and sense of character and humor with actually more customizable bot match options than the pc standard of the day which was unreal tournament and unreal tournament you have a uh menu to make a bot match that that gives you like four options you you can choose how many bots you want how hard they're going to be and what character models they are and in a map with what gameplay mode you want. In Perfect Dark, you can do things such as customize the weapon sets that drop. You can uh, choose choose different faces and bodies for the individual bots rather than just a one whole entire character model, which is a feature of the way the games model characters in general. There's, there's like a harsh, easy-to-spot seam between the neck and the rest of their body that has them swapping <laughs> faces as you go through levels. It's, it's fun to see. 
but uh, you can change like the soundtrack. You can turn on weird slow motion paintball modes. Like one shot kill slow motion mode is really really fun because it makes you feel like Neo in the Matrix, which was very important for kids growing up in the late '90s. Um, you uh can can change the the kind of objectives that you're playing after within the same objective based mode. There's a crazy amount of, of customization going. Okay, okay. You can change the weapon loadouts of, of what's going to be happening, right? But every... The way <clears throat> the weapon placement is delineated in Perfect Dark is that certain points on the map will spawn in, like, weapon number one and weapon number two. And you can change the individual weapons in that slot, meaning yeah, that you... The, <laughs> the location of which weapons spawn where is a player-determined factor, if... If you really want to get into the customizability of this thing to the point yeah. where I think I could have like a lifetime worth of fun playing it on the PC on an emulator to high frame it with mouse and keyboard controls, setting up bot matches between teams of, of eight bots on the uh, chasm match, doing a one shot kill slow motion capture the flag game with with like difficulty ramped up to um, basically aimbot level. But that's compensated by the player being able to think and act in slow motion. They yeah. have a smart slow motion mode where the game goes slower when players are closer <laughs> together. So that way you can have your slow motion and not waste everyone's time. No one else has figured this out. It's like... Max Payne yeah. 3 did. Max Payne 3 did, kind of. It wasn't good enough, though. That was like a <laughs> boring circa 2009 cover shooter with, with cinematic breaks for the player's control scheme to change entirely so that you could watch a movie play in a game you want to play. I'm glad we've gone past that phase, but yeah, no. Max Payne 3 doesn't count. So going back to talking about the version that you're going to take, obviously you want to take an emulator, but there is no official PC port of the game. There is, of course, the N64 version, but also there is the Rare Replay version for the Xbox mm, 360 yeah, and the Xbox, Xbox 360. One. Uh, and the Xbox One. And if you had... See, I, Which you I chose think is the, uh, the definitive way to play it now. Like, I think you have online options with that one. See, would that be a good enough version for you? Maybe. I think so. Because uh, emulating analog controls with a mouse and keyboard is still wonky as hell and doesn't exactly work right. But supposedly, like, someone might have figured it out. There's a configuration being passed around nowadays that uh, has you downloading a pre-set-up, pre-configured emulator and ROM of Perfect Dark and GoldenEye that supposedly has it... I, I really want to try it out for myself, actually, because when I was a kid, I was trying hard as hell to get this game to mouse and keyboard properly and still had to learn how to, like, compensate for analog... Uh, neutral placement drift reset when I was moving my mouse, but it still controlled a hell of a lot better than on the N64's jank-ass, three-pronged, weird sex toy controller. Oh, jeez. <laughs> when, I, when I played it on an emulator on the PC for, for a couple months and had the time of my life and then got a friend to let me borrow his N64 version, I was like, whoa. whoa. It was kind of like playing the uh, PS2 version of San Andreas. I mean, okay, like it, so it was a little more kind of going like, back a step, yeah. Right, Le legally and ethically uh, acceptable, having yeah. a box that I bought of a PC version of the game versus a ROM and emulator yes. I downloaded. But <laughs> but it was still seeing the way the game was meant to be played and being like, oh, why? <laughs> but then again, it's almost 
it's weird because if it hadn't been made for the N64, it probably wouldn't have been made at all because Rare didn't develop for the PC and the PC market was, I don't know, heading towards similar stuff, but maybe didn't have quite the funding that Rare did to create and such titles. Unreal Tournament 99 doesn't have a smart slow motion one-shot kill bot match mode that takes place in the lobby from the Matrix, which is very important for kids growing up in the late 90s. That's very true. The That's very you know. true. And also for a man who's going to be stuck on the island reminiscing about those those years. Yes. Yeah, back when back when it was okay to think the Matrix was cool. <laughs> Well, we're going to move on to a sort of more post-apocalyptic world now. Um, back on the sort of open world genre of titles that we've spoken a little bit about previously. Uh, so why don't we listen to some music from this next game, and let's talk about this next game. saw me standing alone without a dream in my heart without a love of my own blue moon you knew just what i was there for you heard me saying a prayer for someone i really could care for and then there suddenly appeared before me The only one my arms will hold I heard somebody whisper, please adore me So the next game on your list, George, is a, as I said, post-apocalyptic setting, RPG, open-world game that I think many people will know is sort of the Fallout series, of course. Um, but not maybe the Fallout game that everyone expects. It's not three. It's not two. It's certainly not four. Um, it's not developed by Bethesda. It was developed by Obsidian and was sort of a spin-off title uh, that Bethesda just let Obsidian have the reins with. Uh, it didn't review as well as the other games in the series, um, much to the dismay of some people. Um, it released all the way back in 2010, uh, set in well, the post-apocalyptic world of Las Vegas, Fallout 4, Fallout 4, Fallout New Vegas. George, please tell me why the next game you're choosing is Fallout New Vegas. Uh, I highly prioritize replayability and variety and diversity of your gameplay experience, and Fallout New Vegas is something that I could see myself playing forever. The main quest and the story and the <clears throat> way the factions AI behave within one another changes drastically depending on situations that could be a dialogue choice you pick out of out of many or just like a random stupid decision you you decide to make for your own sake in the middle of the sandbox i i love the way the game handles faction play you you have a karma system tied directly to a numerical score that just uh is the game keeping track of how well you're treating certain people compared to others yeah. And over the course of the story, you will find that, that you can't save everybody, you can't satisfy everybody, but you probably can make a convincing argument for whatever direction you try to go in. It uh, weirdly reminded me of, of Majora's Mask, which 
is another very technically impressive N64 game. Because uh, you have, like, Clocktown in the middle of this, like, crazy, uh, absolutely paranoid schizophrenic world where uh, a simulation of a society of scheduled NPCs will be going in and out of their daily routines and the player throws wrenches in it, reloads a, <laughs> reloads a save and sees how it would be differently if they threw a wrench in something else. I had about three different save games going based off of uh, prioritizing three different factions based off of seeing how the story will play depending on which NPCs live and die and how how relevant of a player they become later on. And it's all centralized around this like tiny little three block square of New Vegas being in the center of the map. <laughs> and uh, the the like economic and social simulation going on with that is like crazy, fascinating, interesting. You you can follow the power lines and the water lines of what utility facilities connect to which little outposts of villages out in the desert, and the the, the diligence that they've taken to make sure that this fantasy feels like a convincing world is something that you don't see in Bethesda's own in-house productions of the same franchise. A lot of people prefer Fallout 3 because of the magic obscurity of its wasteland, whereas I I prefer New Vegas for how much more convincing and also reactive its world is. It just seems like like the designers poured a whole lot more diligence and love into building this map compared to the ones you see in Bethesda, which which is fine because, as you said, it's very much a spinoff of Fallout 3. Bethesda laid the groundwork for what I think is a much better game coming out two years later. Yeah. After patches. Well, was... This is also a conditional thing. I have to be playing the PC version after, like, a year of patching and modding. <laughs> yeah, because it was pretty messy when it came out. Um, oh. yeah, but that was the thing I was going to ask you, because what is it about New Vegas compared to Fallout 3, then? Because Obsidian arguably have more experience making RPGs, are probably a better RPG developer. We know about Bethesda's very patchy sort of experience in creating RPGs. They create these giant worlds that they can't really very keep together very well. Um, but what, what is it about their reaction to New Vegas that was lessened compared to like Fallout 3 and then was picked up since with Fallout 4? Uh... It's it's funny that you make a case for Obsidian when there's a lot of people who would make the, the argument that Obsidian consistently releases incredibly buggy, incredibly poorly tested and troubleshooted releases that New Vegas definitely falls into the category It definitely of. does, but I don't know whether that's an intent of the engine because when I think of Obsidian, I think of Neverwinter Nights 2, I think of Dungeon Siege 3, I think of like... You know, South Park, The Stick of Truth, Pillars of Eternity. Like, to me, they, in my own personal opinion, they have an incredibly good track record. That's that's how I see them. Um, compared to Bethesda, where I see spotty here and there, maybe, I don't know, sort of, I would say casual RPGs, I think, would be a word to describe them, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Three Fallout three and four seem much more suited to quick playthroughs of uh, immediately viewable, actionable consequences, whereas stuff going on in Obsidian games oftentimes doesn't result in consequences until like hours, if not days, of playtime later. Which yeah, absolutely. Really makes the difference. Is like the feeling of walking around 
and uh, being able to safely assume that the wrenches you're throwing into this society will have actionable consequences days later. The the term in the RPG elitism community is is called reactivity, which I think is a beautiful term because it, it very nicely encapsulates how reactive the uh, gameplay system they've developed is going to be in the long term. Which which is something that New Vegas is is a great example of. The story and the world drastically changes depending on what uh, decisions the player makes, and you're going to have to make some kind of decisions. In one of the DLC chapters, you you do something that could wipe an entire faction's various multiple towns straight off the map, and then when you go back from that DLC into the vanilla main story content, the main story will actually be written differently to account for possibilities that weren't even available when the game originally launched, <laughs> which is just like crazy attention yeah. to... I don't know, not necessarily detail, but player possibility, or to world like construction, decrease I, your yeah. to, to decrease your word count and character count reactivity. <laughs> so then, going back to the sort of factions then and stuff, is there? Do you have like a favorite faction that you sort of always kind of want to side with, even on new playthroughs, or are you kind of had so much experience with all of them? They're sort of all just. I mean, good of friends. course, like like the lawful good or or neutral good pathway is is to go with the NCR or the independent Vegas the, the the Caesar's Legion or the bad guys but one thing that I think is really really fascinating about New Vegas is that Caesar's Legions aren't cartoony bad guys which is like a weird juxtaposition cuz they, they run around in like <laughs> Greek Roman, Roman era <laughs> costumes <laughs> yeah and but they look their, retarded their methodology <laughs> is is almost terrifyingly realistic and then the fact that what they do is just wipe out a population of a new place they go to enslave the rest and groom them into reforming the society based on their rules like they function like a a real expansionist empire and uh that that makes them legitimately terrifying villains because when you walk up and talk to the leader he's like oh yeah i mean we're gonna like enslave everyone and traumatize the survivors and, and speaks about it in very like term uh, very very calm business focused rational tones that that actually like <laughs> care more about the cost benefit analysis of fucking over thousands of people than the writers <laughs> trying to play that off as a bad thing and then you'll talk to other people in the world who are like oh yeah Caesar's Legion they're like really hard to deal with if you're on the shit end of their stick but if you're if if you're in in one of their safe converted zones it's actually way easier doing business over there than over here and you're like huh so so they're they're unquestionably evil but they have a methodology behind it that's really rational and also scarily realistic I was going to say that sounds creepily like an upcoming presidential cabinet of people. Well, I who... mean, <laughs> the silver lining is that the whole concept of a like expansionist empire being able to just completely exterminate a population and reform the survivors to their rules is, is like more a facet of the ancient world than the modern one, but that yeah. is what Caesar's Legion are based off of, of like real villains that really actually existed like 
the 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 Caesar and Fallout New Vegas is basically the Genghis Khan of that world. Which, for Mongolians, as I have learned recently, um, he's a hero. So you know, it, it does portray that kind of two sides to everyone on the outside or the shit end of Caesar's legion is you know saying they're hard to deal with and he's a villain and that but then the people on the inside um obviously see it a little differently because their life is made easier because from their perspective they're the winners uh, yeah essentially absolutely and i feel like that's what that's what mongolians think about genghis khan (laughs) he is this sort of product who made their country um but you know give or take like 1200 years of of uh <laughs> of history and suddenly like these these unquestionably horrible people who are responsible for the deaths of millions including like western heroes like like Alexander the Great and uh the British Empire itself just <laughs> yeah that that are that suddenly thing. way easier to swallow than <laughs> yeah than you know if yeah. you if you grew up being ethnically tomorrow. indian or native american yes <sighs> yeah Man, the world. Anyway, let's let's get a bit more positively then. So let's move on to your next game now, which is a Bethesda game. Um, so I have maybe chat talk a Bethesda a little bit, although I do enjoy their games. I have some issues, having been a former QA tester anyway. Um, but yeah, so let's listen to some music from this next game, and let's dive straight into it. The next game we're going to talk about, George, is a Bethesda game, as I mentioned. It was developed by Bethesda Softworks and directed by Todd Howard. It's the third game in the very famous Elder Scrolls series that released all the way back in 2002 um, to much acclaim. It's the open-world fantasy role-playing game, The Elder Scrolls III Morrowind. George, I know you've made a video about comparing sort of, what is it, mission structure in both Morrowind and Skyrim. Main um, quest is, comparison. Main quest. Yeah, that was that was it. Which is a really interesting video to see how Bethesda has sort of evolved uh, over the years, and maybe sort of maybe some people who played early Elder Scrolls games have become maybe disillusioned a bit with how Bethesda have changed. Um, but why are you choosing Morrowind to take with you to the Yakuza Red Light District? Uh, well, because like once again, you got good, good replayability and variety of playstyles. Well, yeah. I don't know if, if like the variety of the player's playstyle is exactly a priority when going into critiquing Morrowind cuz good lord, that game has garbage con- combat that mods cannot <laughs> fix that everyone hated when it launched and everyone still hates it now, but 
give or take a few years, and a lot of this game's original sins have have become ironed out and glossed over in the name of just like talking about the storyline, which is something that I really, really enjoy. I, I think this game is a brilliant example of how uh, you can expand a game, uh, a story written specifically for a game. You, you have a situation in which there's, there's a hero being prophesied to like save and, and unite the lands, but it's played off as, as a religious supernatural uh, prophecy, but the player going out of their way to do the main quest, which can be entirely ignored and, and treated as a distraction almost, determines whether or not this prophecy is being fulfilled. And at the same time, it's not necessarily a lot of... Uh, supernatural magic hocus pocus going on that has you fulfilling the prophecy so much as you just being arsed to be the guy who goes through with this weird checklist of uh of of duties that the prophesized hero is supposed to do and it uh asks the question of what determines a prophecy the the person writing it or the or the events fulfilling it yeah and how how mundane that process can end up really becoming. Um, but one thing that, that it really has in spades that the other Elder Scrolls games, I think, have forfeited entirely is, is the diversity of its landscapes and cultures and, and characters. Because when you... Have you played through the main quest of Morrowind? Yes, I have, yeah. Do you remember when uh, you launched the game and you walk like all the way from Balmora and then all the way to Vivek City and you're like, wow, the southern half of this island is like big enough to be an entire game by itself. Uh, you remember that feeling or was that, did you just have to be there? I don't know. I think it was sort of when I played this game, I was really young. It was kind of like playing with friends who owned PC like games because I didn't, I only had consoles and I, I remember playing it and being, I remember being like, wow, this is kind of empty. Huh. Like, like I mean, it was like strange it, it enough. Awful. I'll, I'll like sympathize yeah, with you there, but I think going off the back of uh, what was it? This is two thousand and two. Yeah. This this is not this is not a very early game compared. If you think about games compared to two thousand and two, I think I just remember it feeling a little empty, um, especially after going from like the city and then getting to the southern hemisphere. I don't know. Because I I, I can't remember. Really remember being a little blown away by how many NPCs were populating the city of Vivek and how many different districts and shops and stores were in each yeah, one. Yeah, like, like when you walk through and you see like the rivers and stuff, and uh, it did look like a populated, but also just kind of copy and pasted, I think. So, so, me. so hear me out here. Do you remember the quest where a guy gives you a, a scrap of directions that you follow to take various different modes of mass transit out to the an extremely remote section of the northern half of the island and then traveling the rest of the way on foot turning at specific landmarks outlined in this direction and ending up at a like little tribal camp and being like wow this place looks and feels way different from from the southern half of the island i feel a real a real cultural divide and then that was reflected by me having to go out of my way to play the game differently and 
That they're they're I, like I do not remember now. Oh my god, you're killing me. <laughs> I have played Morrowind like twice, I think. Um, after I think Oblivion came out, I had no reason to go back and play Morrowind. Having been not the biggest Elder Scrolls fan anyway, um, once Oblivion came out and I was playing it on console, hey, I had no reason to go back and play Morrowind. So I have very, well, very few memories. I've played everything. Say again, sorry. Oblivion ruined everything because they introduced <laughs> something called fast travel. And fast travel is a, a, a term for leveraging player convenience that didn't really need a term earlier because Morrowind does that. Everyone really hated how there was no fast travel system in Morrowind, but for some reason everyone didn't acknowledge that he had silt striders and fairies and teleportation spells. There was a learning curve to the fast travel system, and what that learning curve ends up evoking is the feeling of someone uh, traveling to a new place they don't know very well and gradually learning the customs. You uh, start yeah. out taking the same subway as everyone else, which is the Silt Strider. You pay money every single time you got to do it. It's chump change, but whatever. At that early stage in the game, you might end up having to budget for it. Uh, you, you gradually learn the network of Silt Striders, what stations connect to each other, and how you can change at that Silt Strider to a ferry to get to a different city that maybe the Silt Strider doesn't connect to. And then also learn the, the system of uh, Mage Guild teleporters who will teleport you to other towns that you don't know. But then there's places on the map that are not connected to this network that have a real cultural and economic divide where the prices of of their traders are different than the stores with signs and, and posters out on the southern half of the island. And it feels like a real sense of place because the player has to, much like in real life when you're touring around the world, uh, learn the ways of the land and act differently as you go along. Before the end of it, by the end of the game, in order to just make playing it more tolerable, you're flying and teleporting around completely by yourself because <laughs> you bothered to go to the bottom of of uh, what other, whatever weird graves and dungeons have, have the artifacts of being able to fly and teleport everywhere around. Not because you're a magic person who, who min-maxed the game's magic systems, but because there's just equipment and items and various... Um, yeah. Uh, 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 inventory pieces of privilege that allow you to feel and act like a prophesized god-king hero uniting the land versus <laughs> someone who has to take the same subway as everyone else and, and yeah. doesn't know how how to get around and the map looks really confusing when you start out and that's an absolutely beautiful process that not enough fantasy games really convey and the problem nowadays no. is that there's fast travel and, and mini maps and objective waypoints that keep the player's eyes away from the the beautiful worlds that developers are building onto flat boring 2d maps shoved in the corner of the screen that uh make learning the lay of new lands and worlds far too easy of a process that doesn't really have players learning stuff at all and that's, well, that's just less what more just less does. interesting people have uh, there is no sense of exploration one thing i sort of tend to do when i tr well i try when i play games especially when it comes to like fallout because i always enjoy exploring the fallout sort of post-apocalyptic world like stumbling across like an abandoned bunker in the middle of a toxic wasteland is already is really it's quite a thrill so turning off like the hood and turning off just all sense of 
I don't know, direction and just allowing yourself to just move forward as the player and decide yeah. is always a lot of fun. But you, I think you what have I'm, senses, you have sight and sound like that's yeah. what you use in real life to find your way around. You don't really need the minimap in a lot of games. I, I, I think one of the things that I, it sort of leans towards what you're trying to say, I think I, I feel like we've lost a sense of surprise when we make when we play games these days. Yeah. Sort of almost every. Uh, I think that's why Dark Souls maybe. I think subconsciously forgetting all the difficulty and stuff like that. I think a lot of people don't realize one of the reasons they like the Soul series so much is that because the world is constructed in a way where you have no idea, literally nothing. The game doesn't tell you anything about it, and you just have to figure it out for yourself. And I think a lot of people miss that about Dark Souls, and that being one of the reasons as to why they like it. But then they'll go and play other games. And then they'll want everything, like if they play Skyrim or even The Witcher 3, everything has to be spelled out on screen for them. And they lose that sense of exploration that they had in games that forced them to do that. For all the Bethesda games, I've turned off objective waypoints and will use a map screen to find my way around. I did the same thing in The Witcher 3. I turned off the minimap in the corner and ended up enjoying it way better. The experience of walking into the the huge, massive, bustling city of Novigrad for the first time, and finding my way to the, the quest objective, which is Triss's house, was amazing because I knew Triss was a sorceress, and that sorceresses were ostracized in this world, and that there was a particular spate of, of government-sanctioned violence against sorcerers, and everyone was really, really angry at the witches for having unrestrained power, and that there would probably be, be resentment and a mob. So, without a waypoint marker on the map, I, I had to feel my way around the first three blocks of the city, and then follow a series of angry-looking NPCs until I found a mob of people throwing rocks at a house, and breaking the windows, looking inside, <laughs> finding no one at home, and then all of a sudden seeing a little icon in the corner of the screen being like, objective completed, you found Triss's house, now find Triss herself. And that uh, that was a beautiful experience that, that felt like I was actually looking around and paying attention and thinking about what I was doing. Morrowind is a game built to have you play it like that. And yeah. I, I would love it if all the advances in fidelity that we made today in terms of being able to lay out a level with visually specific landmarks and diverse enough uh, clutter for the player to look at and feel, I, I would really like it if more games took the Dark Souls route and used the power available to us to build level designs that do not rely on mini-maps and objective waypoint markers because then it's, it's just flat-out less immersive. Imagine if, if Dark Souls had a, a mini-map. Imagine what yeah, that would no. do to ruin the fuck, player's playstyle. <laughs> your eyes would that. be drawn to the corner of the screen when the game is built to have little uh, hidden, unpredictable traps, booby traps, placed in the mm. environment that you will notice if you're paying attention and using your eyes, which is the skill set you develop as you play the game. Well, it's not even that. It's that you would... You'd, I think most players would be like, okay, so the objective is like just up here. I'm just going to run past all these enemies, I don't want to face these enemies, I know there's a bonfire up ahead, uh, I'm just going to run quickly to get to it safe and do that things. And the amount of stuff that you'd miss, like hidden rooms and bosses that drop weapons and stuff, it's just, it, it just would not work. More infuriating to go through Sin's Fortress and Dark Souls with a mini-map than going through it without a mini-map, which is ironic 
because uh, you, you, you think that minimaps are there as a way to leverage like player frustration and time investment with convenience. But the thing is that when the player is not looking at all those booby traps packed in Sin's Fortress and looking instead at the minimap, they're going to get what they're going to feel are unfair deaths more often. Because of it, it's, I think it's really like a matter of where the player's eyes are on the screen. MGS1 has this huge problem, which is why I also think I like MGS3 way better, is because MGS1, the entire game being shown on the screen is devolved into the symbolic representation of your radar in the corner of the screen. You don't actually need to look at the rest of the whole screen, and that's sad. Yeah. Because they build <sighs> a, a beautiful game to look at, but when the player does not need to look at it, when the player can actually make a objective superior um um like prime first order strategy that negates all the work that devs put into making levels look uh beautiful and also telegraphed it's just sad <laughs> are we even talking about morrowind anymore <laughs> the, the thing is it's like thinking about this i feel kind of like a sort of ignorant person but it's just because i was a young kid i didn't quite realize this sort of that's that thing isn't it when you look back sometimes and you're like damn like i didn't realize just how beautifully crafted this was or how something was and i i don't realize how morrowind how bethesda sent morrowind out with these things and so, uh, i think if i'd played a game like that now i would appreciate the sort of I love progress. Like one of my favorite open worlds, like not open world games, but one of my favorite open worlds in recent times is Xenoblade Chronicles X. So it came out tail end of 2015. That is a game that has the map for you on the gamepad, but the map isn't like a zoomed-in map. It basically just gives you a picture of the continent that you're on and the, and different segments. So it doesn't give you any detail. It doesn't tell you where to go or anything like that. Um, and that that game's open world is just made for exploring. It's made for you to... Because it purposely allows you to sprint really fast and to jump really high. And they do that on purpose for you to really just explore to the highest possible mountains you possibly can. But then also allowing you to work towards progressively getting to a point in the game where you get a robot that flies. And by then you will have explored most of the world so it isn't such a spoil that you can just fly anywhere on the map yeah that's that's how morrowind works too yeah that and that is and that's one of my favorite open worlds in most in recent memory like that progressive build up to giving you the ability to just be able to fly wherever you want but without having spoiled the world because it's made you explore everywhere before you even get to that point and more games do need to do that and, and it, it's an important part of world building. Like I remember a lot of weird terminologies that they use. The the island in Morrowind is built around a volcano that has uh, dry, hardened lava flows coming out of it. Those are called foyotas, yeah. <laughs> and and since they use them as roads, that means that there's a lot of um, uh, temples and dungeons branching out of the foyotas. There are standing stones, little piles of rocks that denote where you might be able to find points of interest from that point on. So instead of seeing an explanation, an explanation point on your map pointing you exactly to the point of interest, you like have to look around and learn the lay of the land and understand how the world works. And it's such an immersive yeah. process that uh, actually feels like exploring a new place in the world. And 
man, I'm, I'm noticing that like a lot of uh, games I'm putting on the list are ones that that exemplify what I consider lost arts. Because specifically parts of gameplay that yeah. may have been sort of simplified or maybe lost over the years. Aim, <laughs> aimbots, uh, well, doombots, doombots. Why can't I not talk today? Bots, <laughs> bot matches, uh, bot matches, uh, reactive storytelling, and then complicated RPG. Uh, uh, the, <laughs> advancements and and destruction <laughs> technology making the gameplay differently yeah well exploring we're gonna... without a minimap <laughs> maybe these are just the pillars for you maybe these are subconsciously the gaming pillars with, with which your perfect ideal game can be built upon um which you can totally have to think about while you're trapped on this island but never carry out um but we're gonna move on now to your next game, um, which I I don't know what this is. Uh, <laughs> I I know what the, I know what the game is. I I don't know what what you mean by what you wrote down though, George. So oh, you're gonna have is, to do. A, this is such a simpler pleasure compared to the others. <laughs> this is more of a just a, a, a sort of relax and just go yeah. all out and not have to think too much about the complex nature of the gameplay <laughs> like we have done so why don't we listen to i think some music from this game <laughs> i don't know um, and let's talk about your uh, penultimate game Okay, so, George, we've come to your second-to-last game now. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not quite sure what it is you're choosing. This could be another emulated thing. This could be another sort of PC-modified port um, that you have thrown into the works. The amount of wrenches you've thrown at me today is uh, quite incredible. Um, but you, you put down Duke Nukem 3D. But a caveat to that, you put 32-bit source point Duke Nukem 3D. Source port. Now, Source port, okay. Source port. Um, now, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what to ask. Uh, we could talk about Duke Nukem 3D and how Duke Nukem 3D was released all the way back in 1996, but I don't think that's what we're going to talk about, is it, George? Uh, uh no. It's just a, <laughs> like I was saying, really, really simple pleasure. Um, I, I hope you picked the uh, menu music of this game as as composed by by Atlanta Icons Mega Death. <laughs> Duke Nukem 3D, when running in the eDuke 32 source port, is uh, like like one of the most definitive easy ways to just like set it up on a modern Windows operating system. But it also uh, opens a lot of modding possibilities for people to put crazy stuff in this game, like vehicles and and moving map pieces and uh, like 
very different weapon sets to create strange survival horror or adventure game play styles. I'm basically putting this on the list under the assumption that I will have a a mother load of good levels to play through in what is my personal favorite uh, uh, personal preference version of of the mid 90s glut of doom clones <laughs> i i think duke nukem 3d just looks and feels and sounds good and has a super duper solid well-rounded set of enemies and weapons and the level design of the vanilla game is is amazing in the first two chapters and there's an absolutely amazing uh community of of level designers out there that have made super duper solid little romps that are just good clean shameless entertainment that that i would i would need if i get lonely in 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 the video game version of cabochinko so these are this is a pc emulated version well, uh emulate th- isn't really the well, right word well it's a pc game anyway but like it's a 32-bit yeah. version of Duke Nukem 3D yeah. but has player generate player made levels that you can download and play as well uh, correct? It, it basically is is a source port of the game over to a new platform which is a 32-bit Windows system compared to the original DOS version of the game yeah. which uh means that you can play in resolutions other than the SVGA graphics of the original, uh, have a 32-bit audio filter that, that makes everything sound a little crisp and clean. But um, the, the reason I, I put this on there is, is for the modding possibilities. Most of the uh, flagship fan-made Duke Nukem maps and mods these days are meant to run under eDuke32. There's actually a fan-made remake of Duke Nukem Forever based on the 1999 E3 trailer version of the game that didn't release and looked way better than the one that ended up getting released. It is actually way more fun and, and, and interactive and, and long-lasting and satisfying to play through than the actual real Duke Nukem Forever game. And it's <laughs> like easy and accessible enough for players to make really impressive levels on this platform. And there are literally hundreds of super good levels to play through. And, and I've always preferred it to Doom. It, it seems like the tool set for both the players and the modders is more varied and interesting than what you get in Doom. That this is, this is the one I would bring with me. Okay, so this is like your pure fun choice. This is just crazy 90s shooting it glorification. Is the, the 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 Chipotle of, of video <laughs> games. It's just, it's just good, clean fun. There's, there's really easy, cheap thrills. No way to to explain it. It just. <laughs> It's just like a good combination of salt and fat and sugar and spice. <laughs> it seems like a lot of the games you've chosen are games that, when originally released, had a good foundation of them, but they needed these extra improvements upon them to reach like their peak like quality, their peak um, sort of 
uh, how to describe sort of the best version they can be. It's such um, a PC gaming way of looking at things. Like I, I am primarily yeah. a PC gamer, and and the fan favorite PC games are stuff that had rocky launches, but really came into their own after a few months of patches and community modding. It's it's funny because it's weird that, to me that it takes it, it takes actual players to make a developer's game better like f like fans and hobbyists to then push the envelope a little further to make these games better which it is makes sense though because uh w when you're developing you kind of become blind to a lot of really yeah, really obvious true, problems yeah. with the systems that that you're developing you you develop a tunnel vision to to what yeah. you're looking at have you ever sort of well sort of speaking about it have you ever sort of gone got into modding yourself have you ever sort of thought about trying it Modding, yeah. When I was a kid, I made a lot of maps for Jedi Knight 2, Jedi Outcast, and Jedi Academy. But I've never really tried development since then. I remember having a lot of fun with it. But it, I think that process also really helped inform me in terms of the kind of criticism I'm doing nowadays. Because back then, I could like look at the differences between console games and PC games and be like, oh, okay, this thing is developed as a flexible, open-ended platform for modders. This thing is developed as a really finicky scripted system that might break if, if modders try something or if a PC yeah. user without the right configuration would try something like uh, the, the jump from going to a lot of PC first-person shooters that played by a very standardized rule set to uh, a, a lot of cinematic console games was was always a lot of fun to look at because I could be like, oh, that's, that's the trick they're using to get this part of the map to move the way they want it to or oh this is why elevators don't work elevators why are they so hard have you played battlefield 4 <laughs> yes so back back when i was uh making maps in quake 3 engine games um getting a piece of movable scenery to transport the player quick and easily over vast distances of space was something really really tricky to do because you a lot of times kill the optimization of uh, your map by just having vast distances of space be there at all. And yeah. uh, the, the solution is to hide a way to teleport the player. Or um, in, in Battlefield's case, they don't really try to hide the fact that the elevator is just straight teleporting you at all. If, if you go into an <laughs> elevator in Battlefield 4 and throw a med pack on the ground as a medic and then press the elevator button... <laughs> You'll you'll see your med pack disappear. You'll see different lighting happen in the elevator. You'll see um, all of the floating objective and waypoint and teammate markers on your HUD stay at a perfectly livable eyesight, level eyesight, and then all of a sudden appear lower within like a split second of when it does that teleport. It's just like I, I feel like that's something that I might not have noticed as easily if I didn't try to make elevators myself. Uh, uh, 10 years ago yeah it's funny you said that actually because i've been playing through dishonored 2 and that that has a lot of elevators in it and you can use the elevators to obviously trick guards or mm -hmm. sort of use them as distractions and they work really well because they're sort of open uh they're like old elevators so you can sort of see through the sort of metal like mesh 
that locks you in and uh, you can sort of see the guards in the stairs and that works really well um so i've never really thought about elevators are like a rare treat you you could go over to mass effect and see how they do it they have you get in an elevator and then make the level geometry after a certain point kind of scroll towards you rather than you actually moving towards the geometry because uh, it's it's a disguised loading screen. So what it does yeah. is basically they're thinking with portals and having a non-Euclidean portal set up have uh, this, this endlessly scrolling background uh, scroll, scroll past the player rather than you convincingly moving through the space itself. And uh, I don't know, like, like being able to like squint and see a lot of the tricks... <laughs> is is one thing, but being able to be genuinely impressed by what they pull off sometimes in some games is is a whole nother thing. Like the Call of Duty campaigns, for example, are like, you know, four to five hour shooting galleries that probably aren't the most amazing video games ever produced. But they have really good engineering and programming put behind them that oftentimes gets stuff to work. More so with the Infinity Ward campaigns than the Treyarch ones. Like, like in that yeah. case, you'll see like objects being placed in the way of AI pathfinding, whereas with with Infinity Warfare, you'll notice like just super duper solid scripted events designed to a lot for the player looking wherever or the AI going wherever and the thing just working. It's weird having worked on games prior and the sort of scripts that you have to deal with and, you, and when you're looking at things, and you know when something's going wrong because it's linking to another type of script. You do see sort of. The, the, I don't know, the not the secrets, but the kind of the cuts you have to make or the tricks you have to en- employ to convince the player that something's happening when it really it's all just smoke and mirrors a lot of the time and you're maybe just disguising the player behind a wall and then completely teleporting them to another part of the map and it disguises the player to think that they're like moving yeah. at, I don't know, fast speed or something. It's... It's really interesting, sort of the tricks that devs will employ to do that kind of thing. One of, uh, I think, my all-time favorites are are large crowds and flower fields. They will copy paste the exact same image of a model in a really efficient way that allows it not to be animated or look any different or lit any different from the one next to it. But by changing the timing of the animations or visual clutter objects placed (laughs) next to it, it makes it look way more convincing. The flower field in MGS3 and the crowds in a lot of Hitman games are good examples of that, where you'll see like really bad animations and lighting and model quality, but presented in a way that makes players not notice if they're they're going the developer intended optimal play route. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man, Phoenix having worked in game development sometimes some of the things you notice you're like oh no that looks so bad but that's not the intended path that the developer wanted you to go on so you're kind of or, looking or at just stuff like where the player's eyes end up on the screen yeah exactly don't have the player yeah. looking at the mini map don't have the player looking at the individuals of a huge crowd <laughs> going up and staring at their faces <laughs> picking them all out well george we're going to move on now um to your final game it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. You are far more eloquently able to talk about video games than I am. So it's been a pleasure to listen to you talk about them. But we're going to talk about a game that, in a series, you recently reviewed the most recent title in this series. Um, and I, I think I remember you saying that it potentially has the potential to be the best one 
in that series, if I'm correct. Oh, yeah. So I mean, I'm right very now, interested. We have a benchmark. Right now, Soon we may so have an, an usurper to the throne. Because I'm very interested to hear why you've chosen the previous game then to the one you just reviewed. So uh-huh. why don't we listen to some music from this next game, and let's dive straight into George's final game. Okay, so coming into George's final game now, we have um, a series that most recently released um, its sixth version, uh, not including spin-offs, but its sixth mainline version just a few weeks ago. Two very, very good reviews, including including George's very own. Um, But today we're talking about the game before it, the fifth game in the series, which is one of my favorite strategy games of all time. Uh, directed uh, directed by uh, the amazing team at Fraxis and overseen by the one and only Sid Meier. Uh, this game is the 4X video game, Sid Meier's Civilization V. George, please tell me why the last game is Civilization V. Uh, well, it encapsulates like a lot of the values I've been looking at for, for the rest of the list. There's a lot of uh, replayability and, and diversity of the situations you can create as a player but once again like so many others on the list there has to be a caveat i i i would want all well i was about to say all three but there are really just two expansions for this one you have um gods and kings and brave new world yeah one of which uh revamps the religion system and the other of which revamps the the kind of pacifist style culture science focused playthroughs and what i what i think gods and kings does that is such an accomplishment is is have the trade routes feel like tangible objects on the board map okay being able to have economic concepts that are just numbers floating around in a network of transactions be represented and interact with as tokens on a game board is 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 something that like not even a lot of board games are able to to convey efficiently and smoothly that the brave new world expansion pack does does very well that the trade the trader unit is like what i'm referring to specifically and it's a very very clever piece of game design that that has it's kind of like uh, when, when you go from the old Final Fantasy games and the swords that you can equip your characters with are just numbers on a spreadsheet versus yeah. the newer ones where, where the swords change 
like the animation and, and movement timing and cycles of, of how you have to play and understand the game is is the the leaps and bounds that they made with that expansion pack and the reason why I have this one picked over the sequel is because I feel like a lot of the decisions that they made in Civ 6 aren't really going to fully make sense until they come out with another expansion pack. Like, one thing I can't get over is uh, how builders can't build roads, for example. It, it feels okay. like there's something lacking when you're forced to make a trade route unit to make your road in Civ 6 compared to Civ 5, which still seems like there's a greater breadth of gameplay experiences you can create with all the different variables that they, you you can play through which is a little more of a of a cluster than civ 6 which is uh nicely streamlined and organized yeah but at the same time you you're not you're not forced to use those those trader units and the archaeologists and and the the great artists and great writers and <laughs> actors who, who become economic forces that the player can actually interact with and move around much in the same way that they do armies. That's that's really neato. And, and of course, like, it's Civ. It's a highly addictive uh, strategy sandbox of, of infinite possibilities that, that would last you forever on a deserted city. It would <laughs> definitely. I, I think out of... Well, maybe uh, next to Rainbow Siege, uh, Rainbow Siege, and um, this is probably the most replayable. <laughs> you just said Rainbow Siege, and I'm like picturing in my head the most like adorable, awesome, amazing thing ever of like magical unicorns trying to to throw rainbows at each other to break <laughs> through their their mystical fantasy castles. <laughs> I don't know whether I've, whether I've got a cold or something, but my, Lisa Frank's my... Rainbow Siege, make it happen, game industry. <laughs> Just I am unable to talk in any way today, but I've not played Rainbow Six. Uh, not Rainbow Six Civilization Six. God damn, Civ I've not played uh, Civilization Six yet, but. Civilization V is one of my favorite strategy games of all time. I absolutely adore that game, and I, I think it would definitely be a very good contender if I had to choose a game to take with me as well. Um, you said, especially in re your review about Civilization VI, that it, it's almost there already at this stage of what Civilization V got to, um, but needs still some work going further. Um do you see it surpassing Civilization V quite easily? I don't know, quite easily, but with a few extra features, I think it could. They just really, they just released a big patch today that uh, finally allows people to rename cities. So that's yeah, I can't believe that was omitted to begin with. <laughs> so what does it sort of have to do to sort of beat Civilization V then? That would make it a, a pick for you to take with you instead of five. Uh, I, I think a lot of, um, weird exploits going on with the economy back when I was playing it on launch would, would of course have to be ironed out. One thing that you could do is produce, I think it was a certain unit that was more expensive to sell than it was to buy. I, th I think it was the war horses. And if you were playing as one certain, uh, empire that gets a discount on war horses, you could buy them with gold and then sell them. You could buy them with gold at your discounted rate and then sell them at the vanilla base game's unaffected rate, which means that you would make a profit for everyone sold. And just rake up super easy money to create a world-building hell army that way within, like, <laughs> ten turns. 
Yeah. And uh, that's like just kind of a, a a little bit of a epidemic of oversights that the new one uh, is facing. Not as bad as when Civ Five first launched, but things like that and not being able to rename cities and how a lot of the uh, NPC voice lines and barks will conflict with stuff that's happening in the game because the writers just didn't really... I think consider a lot of the possibilities happening when the player sees these NPC voice lines uh, really, really kind of kill the sense of polish that Civ Five has. Okay. It does seem a little more sort of cartoony looking as well. Not oh, as right, which, which, which is fine. I yeah, it doesn't seem as serious as Civilization Five may. And I, I don't think look- you'll find a lot of objections over that, though, because uh, it's I I think it's more pleasing to the eye, even though it's a little depressing seeing like poly counts across the board and, and the amount of post-processing being applied lowering, which <laughs> I might be kind of a weirdo on because I I like post-processing more than most people, I think. But they do that to <laughs> make the game more animated overall. You'll see a lot more trees swaying versus trees being kind of a static object it does seem that they've tried to make more simulate more things going on like even with the building of wonders there's like a sort of like a time-lapse cutscene beautiful animation yeah so it seems they're trying to up the production while also making it not too graphically intensive because even civ 5 could pretty much run on most pcs um so it wasn't that graphically intensive which is one of the the great tragedies of the previous games in the franchise was they were always really poorly optimized for a a scene being rendered that really shouldn't be that demanding civ 4 was was like the worst in the year that half-life 2 and doom 3 and far cry came out i had a computer that could play all of the above fine but absolutely choked under civ 4 which had a layer, a level of asset fidelity that was right on par with like early PS2 launches. But which is so yeah, be- because they had to like map it to a spherical globe that you could zoom out and rotate manipulate. around on an axis. Yeah. And I, I don't know what it was about that game's engines and its assets that that made them so demanding. But there was something going on that makes these really slow. Uh, uh, low poly strategy games choke on on regular people computers. It's a franchise that is is really popular and highly marketable to regular people who aren't hardcore gamers. But you shouldn't really need a hardcore PC to be able to play that kind of experience. So I'm glad that they took the direction they did. Yeah, because they switched over to what was it? It was called like Law, like the low overhead rendering engine, which is like their new graphical engine they used, which. I can't remember what it did, but it it changed the rendering natively for the architecture of what they were using to allow it to sort of do simulate that it was doing a lot, but because of the sort of fog of war, as it were, they would just do nothing behind that. And I can't remember exactly what the technology was, but it made it pretty much run on anything from like toaster above to supercomputer. So it was pretty good and made it a lot more accessible for players to get into and I think around Civ 4, a lot more people were starting to play the Civilization games, but Civ 5 was really when the the game sort of became as popular as it is now, I think, especially with the success that Civilization 6 seems to have gotten. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people who uh, 
have have fully embraced Civ in all its complexity and and uh, over overwhelming amount of of features and currencies and values and variables to be juggling around, who don't really play games, who okay. um, aren't like I was saying hardcore gamers like like I. I have seen it being mentioned in, in mainstream television programs that that never ever talk about games. There was, for example, there was a bit on the Colbert Report about it. Um, back when really that was on the air. Yeah, yeah, it was about Civ Four <laughs> back in like two thousand five okay. or six, I think. So a long time ago. Wow, even Civ Four. Wow. Yeah, yeah. No, Civ has had pretty pretty good mainstream appeal, believe it or not. Even though, like, when you look at a screenshot of Civ, it looks really complicated. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that's, like, just another example dealings. of how, how video games can be super mainstream and still retain things like difficulty and complexity. I mean, the NES was, was the highest-selling game console next to the PS2. And uh, th- those games were hard as shit. And everyone still loved them. <laughs> everyone still bought the shit out of them and made them into mainstream <laughs> pop culture icons. It, that's more of a product of that's all they had, though, isn't it, really? That's not so much the options available to them I mean, at the true, time. I mean, true, but it still shows that the <laughs> capability of, of tolerating and embracing hard, complicated games on a mainstream scale is there, I think, as, as Civ well, exhibits. Yeah, well, we've seen Dark Souls, obviously, being the example everyone mm. harps yeah, on yeah, about. Yeah, 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 so there is something that definitely that makes things appeal even if they are maybe on the surface overly complicated systems i i really think the deciding factor ultimately is just whether or not it's a good game at the end of the day very true and and a lot of like what i determine good game depends on things like elegance and accessibility which which is also a determining factor on if it'll be a mainstream hit or just a niche hit what is, I'm trying to think of like stuff this year that has become incredibly popular, strangely enough, even though people didn't expect it to. I can't think of anything this year that that is overly maybe stepping away from that sort of casual area, which I sort of maybe put Call of Duty or Assassin's Creed into, and sticks out like Dark Souls has. Not, I don't. I'm I can't, surprised at how big of a deal MGS Five was. I think that was the most popular launch in the series history. Previously, that record holder was MGS2, which is a game that had a ridiculously convoluted, complicated story and also a very, very <laughs> wacky control yeah. scheme that was just like not, not easy to pull off a lot of complicated moves with. Yeah. No, I can't think of anything this year. Um, not too much. Mm. Stuff like Dishonored Two is doing really well, but even that, you boil it down to not having too many complex systems. Um, trying to think. Yeah, no, I can't think of anything. Oh, but oh, 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 Overwatch. Overwatch, yes. Yeah, even that's though a, yes. they, I don't know if I like it, but that's like harkening back to a very, very different style of shooter that managed mainstream success, regardless. Yeah, with very, ver- like, it's such a variety of gameplay, um, considering how the characters sort of all act and play differently, yeah. you know, compared to other shooters, which are, you know, copy and pasted soldiers across the board. So, yeah, that, yeah, that's a good example of it, I think. But, George, I think it's about time. 
that we start Probably. packing your bags and send send you on your way. Um, you have eight elegant and excellent games that you have chosen, each with their even own sort Duke of pillar. Nukem. Yeah, even Duke Nukem for that fun, just that just that good old fast food type fun that you want in some video games to take with you. So. I'm going to send you on your way. There is usually a question I ask everyone before they leave, but okay. I don't think you'd, you'd oh. be able to even give me an answer. Oh, I mean, I could because, take a stab at it. Uh, well, so usually the last question I ask everyone okay. is that if they could only take one console with them, not PC, because PC can emulate... Oh, this is this easy. Is, okay, okay. Oh, this okay. Is super I thought easy. you would argue or or just leave because I, I know exactly to take the PC. I know exactly what answer is. So if you could take any console then, George, yeah. what exactly would your answer be? PS2. Okay. That, that's, that is a perfectly, perfectly good choice considering how excellent the PlayStation 2's back catalog is. It's, it's, it's incredibly huge. It's large. It's enormous. It's full of both good-looking and good-playing and good-selling games because I think that was like the one moment in, in the video game industry where the uh, counterbalance between reaching high fidelity and... Uh, massing a uh, high amount of sales while also not having a ridiculous cost of development was yeah we're yeah. all perfectly balanced within one another and when you like look at the string of big uh, Japanese PS2 hits there's just like such a high bar of quality for um, a lot of times how weird and niche and experimental the concepts they were working with were like uh, MGS3, as a perfect example, is a super exciting, rollicking, explosive, cinematic adventure, highly scripted with, with really fancy cutscenes and then like cutting edge graphics of its day. But it has this like grid survival menu of, of a really hard to control <laughs> character, of very unforgiving stealth mechanics, and oh man, like like stuff like Kingdom Hearts and the PS2 era Final Fantasies were like a cluster mess of beautiful looking games that played with really really complicated open-ended systems um the silent hills are, are like another example of just like solid quick single-player campaigns that look beautiful that you can't really get away with anymore uh and even like uh lower tier stuff like i don't i don't think katamari damashi could happen anymore no i don't how, think how do you, so how do you say it? it's like katamari damashi S S H I uh, Damasi, but you know, in the West you just say Damasi. Like I don't know actually. I don't know if it's spelt. Is it spelt katakana or? But that's the case of a gameplay concept that's like too wacky and weird for the mainstream, but could come out today as an indie project. I think if that were the case, though, the bar of like quality and standards of production would just be way lower. Back when Namkai, just yeah. You'd just never see it on a console either. I don't think you would even see it. Like a game like Kamatomari just appear on console. It would just be one of those PC Steam games that you and, might And it would have up. like really janky collision detection made in Unity with, with weird-ass frame drops and, and menus that didn't map correctly to where your mouse was pointing. Much like the wonderful end of the world, which was an indie knockoff of Katamari Damachi, which is not the same at all. On top of not <laughs> having like this beautiful, absolutely beautiful. There's no other way to talk. It's fucking beautiful. The soundtrack in that game commissioned by different artists spanning different uh, genres. That stuff costs money that, that a lot of indie developers just don't have and that a lot of uh, 
mainstream publishers like like Namco, which is now merged with Bandai Namco, can't yeah. really afford to toss around anymore because the uh, the the bar for risky projects is just so much higher than it once was. And uh, risky projects in the PS2 era were like solid, reliable, quick hits that worked. They it was a, they just worked. It and was yeah, a time it, where where stuff just worked. <laughs> Games didn't cost that much to make. Not it, you had a rental market too, like millions. still making back on the investment of these quick disposable single player campaigns that uh, could still be bought in the millions by rental chains, if not people who actually paid the $50 for... Ah, oh, there were $50 back then, too. <laughs> we sound like old men complaining about foregone good, good times. <laughs> I, the guilty as charged, I guess. <laughs> well, George, I'm going to be sending you off with those eight games and a PlayStation 2 as well for you to enjoy. <laughs> George, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure having no you No problem. On. Thank you. It was um, a lot of fun. I'm, I apologize to everyone about my unable to talk very well today. I don't know what's wrong with me, but George has picked up the slack and has eloquently talked about all of these games. So, George, just before I let you go, please tell all the wonderful listeners who have made it this far where they can find you on the internet and what they should be checking out, like uh, your YouTube channel or something. YouTube.com slash bunnyhopshow. Um... Lately, you'll find a lot of reviews. You don't have to watch those. But uh, check out my video on bull shots. I'm pretty proud of that one. Check out my videos on Japan. I really like the uh, editorial stuff that I do. I'm typically really proud of, of uh, like tackling a topic that requires research. Just playing a game and talking about it, it's, it's a little more uh, less involving of a process. But, but, you know, life goes on. It works. I, I pad out <laughs> the weeks and let the... Uh, the the mental energy bubble up to those moments that i'm regularly proud of pulling off he does himself a disservice but as a watcher of george's Aww. videos definitely go check out his videos because they are excellent and especially if you have any questions about japan he recently did a series three videos about japan on his visit that really do explain everything that people want to know from me yeah. about japanese arcades don't and bother leave just watch my yeah, videos don't bother me watch his videos also just watch the rest of his videos because as you've heard today he can talk about games quite good quite good indeed so george thank you so much for coming on the show today oh, thank and you. thank you to everyone who's listened as always you can find final games on soundcloud and itunes and stitcher and acast and all those wonderful places that you like to listen to podcasts you can also find us on twitter at final games show uh, and me at Liam BME. Also, if you want to email me, a lot of people email me these days instead of uh, reaching out on Twitter. If you still want to continue doing that, you can email finalgamespodcast at gmail.com and uh, I'll probably respond to you within, I don't know, <laughs> however long it takes me to stop playing uh, Pokemon at the moment, which is the sort of go to thing. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for listening to the show and I hope you'll join us again next week. And thank you so much to George and goodbye. Bye.